The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. The House Show. For over 30 weeks. The revolutionary force in retro sports entertainment podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, the Retro Network and the House Show proudly present to you this spooktacular time. <laughs> Let's welcome the trio's tag team champions of the world. The master library, Kevin Straight Out of Hellions. Sweet Maddie, Trick or Treats. And the educator of exorcisms, collectively known as the Haunted House Show. Enter at your own risk. Halloween Havoc 1991 features 11 matches. We start with the Chamber of Horrors match featuring Sting, the Steiner Brothers, and El Gigante taking on Abdullah the Butcher, the Diamond Stud, Cactus Jack, and Big Van Vader. The Creatures tackle Big Josh and PN News. Beautiful Bobby Eden takes on Terrence Taylor. Jimmy Jam Garvin battles Johnny B. Bad. Stunning Steve Austin takes on Dustin Rhodes. Oz battles Bill Cashmere. Doug Summers takes on Van Hammer. Flyin' Brian Pillman takes on Richard Morton. Tom Zink battles the Halloween Phantom. The Enforcers battle the Patriots. And then in our main event for the WCW World Heavyweight Champion in a two out of three falls match, Ron Simmons battles the champion, Lex Luger. Welcome everyone to another edition of the Haunted House Show. It is me as always, Mr. Maddie Trick or Treats, and I am joined by my Trios Tag Team Partners. To my right is none other than the Educator of Exorcisms. Educator, halfway through October. Isn't that crazy to think about? Oh man, man, Columbus weekend, what a blessing that extra day off from school, extra day off from uh, the driving school as well. I uh, did put a few hours in at the game store, but it was great to be able to sleep in that morning uh, and just have some, you know, gaming time downstairs in the game room and just chilling and hanging out and doing whatever. Ah, it was a blessing. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I was hoping the weather would have been a little warmer for you. So that way you could have taken the yacht out for one last, one last hurrah, but it's already up and tarped for the season. It's a little too, little too, uh, crisp out there. So, uh, <laughs> speaking of crisp, let's throw it to Mr. Crisp, uh, to my left, the mass library, Kevin straight out of hellions. Kevin, how's it going? Oh, it is going well. Um, I mean, the educator was talking about his Monday off. Uh, I got to go to the vet. Did you get your shots done? I, I did. I did. Was there um, a rubber glove involved? 
There was not. There's not. But I did get a treat and a scratch behind the ears. Oh, well, right. that, that's what happens when you get nudicles. So. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, but guys, I I just gotta I just gotta go over a few things. Obviously, before we get into the show. Um, so, you know, we're, we're talking about Columbus Day. I, you know, had the day off, decided to go to the grocery store. Um, usually when I go to the grocery store, I, I go probably twice a week. I, I have one that's literally next door to my work. So I'll usually hit that after work. But on my day off, I like to get in super early in the morning and, and get out. So I go and I, Wegmans, greatest grocery store on the planet, um, it's absolutely fantastic. So I go and I notice, um, I go to the dessert section because let's be honest here, the tastes of fall are the best food. It's the best taste stuff in the world. Um, and I think we too are very blessed being up in uh, New York, being in the Northeast during this time because we're talking the best apple cider in the world. We're talking, you know, apple pies, apple crisp, apple crumble, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I go in, I buy a mini pie, an, an apple crumbled topped mini pie. Fantastic. And I get the last apple cider that's available, which was shocking to me, but they only had one left. So I get home and I said, you know what, I'm going to, as I'm at the store and I went about 10 o'clock, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a good dessert for tonight, right? Well, uh, yeah, I ate that entire apple uh, mini pie by like eleven thirty. <laughs> as soon as I, as soon as I got home, I got into it. But well done, sir. Well done. So I, I don't drink apple cider to the evening. It's a weird thing that I do. It's like a treat before bed. So I, I go and you know I didn't really think about it that it was the last one available. So I uh, pour my apple cider out into my you know, collector's cups that I've collected over my wrestling events over the years, as you guys are aware. I always got to get the the $10 soda where I get the collector's cup with it. And, uh, you know, pour the apple cider in, take a sip, and spit it out. Absolutely spit out the apple cider. Now, we live in an area that has the best apple cider on the planet. Um, I didn't realize that the reason it was the last apple cider left was it was the pumpkin spiced apple cider. Oh. 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 I mean, it's like jack-o'-lantern diarrhea. <laughs> I mean, not happening. It was not good at all. I don't know if you guys have 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 tried pumpkin spiced apple cider, but um, when you get that taste of the pumpkin spice when you're expecting just regular apple taste, like the crispness, the sweetness, you know, the tart, when you're expecting that and you get something completely different, it sucks. No desire. I, I couldn't drink it. I, I threw out a gallon jug of this oh. pumpkin spice apple cider. So make sure you're checking your labels out there, kids. Now, what if you saved it till next year and made it like a hard cider? No. It was too <laughs> pumpkin-y. It, it was too pumpkin spiced. It literally was like they dumped just like a bag of potpourri in a drink. Oh. And, oh, and used and used Hawk Hogan's blender to, to get it down or something. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was like I said, it was a, it was not good, guys. But um, yeah, so I I spit take. So then, of course, I had to clean up my, you know, clean up my apartment. Right. So, but you know, that's good. But you know what, though, at least I don't have a hole in my apartment. That's true. 
That's true. Now, now, both of you have been to my apartment, and some way consider it a hole in the wall, anyways. But this is an actual hole. A uh, little background that treats and the educator know, but for the listeners here, um, our rent is dirt cheap, so we kind of tolerate uh, a lot of stuff because our rent is dirt cheap. Um, my dad came up for a visit. He has not been here for a visit for about two years maybe a little longer and this is this is out there on like my social media feed and i've done articles and everything and all this will combine into one story i promise you but um my son is on the autism spectrum so every kid's different for that i'm not going into details for it but it'll be relevant to the story later so i come home from work last thursday uh you know i woke up early i listened to our show going live for all the listeners there and enjoyed it very much it's on my way home and i pull up and i can't get into my own driveway or my garage and i see my landlord on the side of the house with scaffolding what's going on well he showed up to put in two new windows and when he did it the windowsill collapsed in his hands completely fell apart so he starts investigating tearing stuff back and tearing stuff back as best as we can tell it looks like the siding was put on the house about 20 years ago to cover extreme water damage that was soaked through the insulation the wood everything and they just put the siding over it it's before this guy owned the house before we were here too put the siding over the house just covered it up So, of course, covering up a problem solves it, and that water damage got worse and worse and worse to the point where stuff is just falling apart. So he says, this is going to take me a few days. Um, I don't want your kid or your cats to escape or get hurt or anything, so we have to close off the bedrooms while this project is happening, because the the windows you're replacing was the bedroom windows. Also, my dad's visiting, so I'm like, well... We have half the place closed up. We have construction going on here. And my kid's freaking out that someone's going to fall out the window and doesn't want to be at the house. So I guess we got to figure out something to do here. Saturday morning, <clears throat> talking with my dad. What can we do? And it's raining. Because we're going to do like a, a pumpkin patch thing or, you know, uh, an orchard, wine tasting, something like that. Nature trail. It's raining off and on. He's like, well, I just wanted to see my grandson and spoil him and do something fun. I was like, you know what? Screw it. Let's go to Destiny. There are tons of activities, tons of things that can be done. Let's just go. Then we're out of the house, too. Before you you went to Destiny, you should have sent myself and the educator a text message because there's a security guard there that is a jerk. Make sure you don't have any sort of Hasbros or AEW unrivaled figures. Crazy. Can I see your ID? But continue. But continue on. So, two things happen when we get there, though. One, places had not updated their websites to say that they were closed. So I have all these plans. Let's go here. Let's go there. Let's try this activity. Closed, closed, and closed again. Website says they're open, but they were not. So then I'm seeing all these other activities that we can do. Oh, let's try this. What I was unaware of in the last month, as my wife's been, you know, 
uh, teaching from, you know, doing the online teaching I've been at work during the day, is my kid now has a fear of heights as well. So this mall being very open and you can see down all three floors and then this has this activity I thought he'd love where you're on a harness climbing above everything flipped out. Absolutely complete meltdown. It's not going well for anyone. We bribe him. We go into the candy store. It's called like it's candy or it's sugar or sugar time or something like that. Tell him he can get anything he wants. He's like, oh, there's a giant gummy bear. That looks so crazy and funny. Oh my gosh, giant gummy bear. Sure, sure. Get whatever you want, kid. Let's just turn this day around. How much would either of you guess a giant gummy bear is? $35. 40 it's a forty-dollar, four and a half pound gummy bear in my kitchen right now. It's great. It's one of those uh, knife and fork gummy bears. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He actually bit the nose of it, and it was like peeling back, like Walking Dead. <laughs> it's pretty. You fun. should uh, put it in like a couple gallons of distilled water just to see what happens. Ooh. Because right. <laughs> he's not eating it, so I may as well do something with it. Yeah, right. Change myself. That's some content right there, Kevin. Why don't we get a get a baseball bat? We'll throw pitches to you. See if you can hit one. That's not gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> so the day doesn't go well. We all get drinks at Margaritaville there, just just to you know try to write ourselves and everything. Head back to my hometown. Head back to over to the hotel. You know, visit with my dad some more. And I was like, well, this was a bust. But you know, guys, sometimes I think things happen because fate, God, whatever you want to call it, is stepping in. Because yesterday, I find out that the orchard, the pumpkin patch thing, that whatever we were going to, had to message every single person that was there all day Saturday when we were going to be there for an extensive COVID outbreak. Oh, crazy. So I'll take the frustrating day over knowing we didn't do that and then my dad has to travel back to his home state and then quarantine and possibly be spreading it in his area as well so you think it was divine intervention i think i think that whole weekend was my own chamber of horrors (laughs) that was gonna be my segue kevin so you can't (laughs) steal that let the host have the glory okay um no so i'm glad you know so have you been eating gummy bear like every night like, is it you, is that your mini pie? Is that your dessert every night? No, we, we took a... Because uh, I'm not that big on it, on, on gummy stuff anymore. And I'm just staring at this thing. I'm like, what the hell do we do with this now? And, like, the ears <laughs> are gone, but that's about it. Yeah, what do you what do? You do? do you do you slice it up? Like, what do you... Like, I'm, I'm kind of confused. First night, we're taking it like a Thanksgiving turkey. Just, like, cutting off little slices. Did you break out the electric, the, the, the like electric knife that you plug in? And Man, I was like, would you like yeah. some light gummy or dark gummy? Yeah, <laughs> it's like that, like twenty pound Hershey candy bar that they come out with at Christmas time. You gotta like slice that bad boy up, or the Snickers bar. I have heard for that one, like the Hershey's one, people use that to melt down for cookies oh, yeah. and chocolate cake and stuff like that. That makes sense. So that actually has like um a viable purpose yeah yeah you know what i love too is when i go to like five below and they have the nerds by the yard yeah but i complain because it's not nerds but i want a whole tube of just nerds right they're individual Wrapped like little boxes, boxes yeah. in there yeah let's screw that <laughs> you just want to crack it open and tug it right now you just jug it <laughs> exactly. i want to i want to basically do a funnel of nerds exactly i think tube of nerds will be the name of my new comic book podcast 
Yeah. Well, don't Google tube of nerds. Some weird <laughs> porn comes up. So. <laughs> um, yeah. So on that note, uh, educator this week, you have been tasked with coming up with our HalloweenCostumes.com item of the week. Of course, HalloweenCostumes.com is offering 20% off. All you have to do is just go into our show notes, click the link, and boom. Save 20% off one item on HalloweenCostumes.com. That is good until October 31st. And there's another link in there for Fun.com for that. You save 15% off, and that's actually good for the rest of the year. So use the HalloweenCostumes.com one. You got a couple weeks left to do it. And then you can go to the fun.com, find some different things for if you're going to buy Christmas gifts. You know, um, Kevin just talked about the outbreak of COVID. Uh, buy your gifts from hollow, uh, from fun.com, and you won't have to deal with that whole nightmare of going to a store because you know that's going to happen. I mean, I work retail. That is... Uh, I'm going to get COVID, I've decided. <laughs> it's, it's going to happen. The good thing for me is I live alone. So you, if I do get COVID, all I need is 14 mini pies and a couple <laughs> of uh, gallons of cider. And then I'm good to quarantine. I got Halloween Havocs up the Yazoo, and then I'll just Grubhub the rest of it. So uh, yeah, it's you, it, you got to make sure you, that uh, the wrestling buddies aren't allowed to leave the house. Yeah, I'm quarantining with my friends. So uh, <laughs> so that is how it is going. But Educator, why don't you uh, take it away with our item of the week? Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, who is the most successful plumber of all time? No, it's not T.L. Hopper. It's obviously Mario. But the Mushroom Kingdom is too big to hold only one lonely plumber. So the genius creators over at Nintendo have created a whole cast of timeless characters, such as Luigi, Toad, Yoshi, and even Donkey Kong. If you're looking to become one of these characters in the real world, to search for your very own gold coins, one-ups, or to just party like you beat Bowser in Super Mario 64, you'll love the huge Koopa-sized selection of Mario Brothers costumes available at HalloweenCostumes.com. Now ladies, don't think they've forgotten about you, and if you're looking for a classic couple's look, then going as Mario and Princess Peach for your party is a pretty safe bet. All of these and more can be found at HalloweenCostumes.com. All right, guys, we are back, and like Kevin said, we are going into our own chamber of horrors. We are covering Halloween Havoc in 1991. It's an evening of terrifying destruction. Uh, we are in Chattanooga, Tennessee at the UTC Arena. The date was October 27th, 1991. In attendance, about 9,000 people. Uh, what did you guys make of this crowd? Uh, the arena, the way it was set up, it was a very small 9,000 people. I mean, I don't think there was a bad seat in the house from what I could tell from all the different camera shots. But, you know, if that's a legit number, you know, good for them. It was a good show. I enjoyed this a lot and uh, lots to talk about tonight. I'm wondering why we didn't go to Chattanooga, Tennessee for this event. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone keep saying how close Chattanooga is to every location of every wrestler oh. here, and, and to and to other events that WCW had. I just assume it's centrally located, and we should have gone as well. Well, you know, Mike Rotunda wasn't on the card, so Syracuse wasn't represented. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you can tell though when it doesn't have the tiers. Like if it doesn't have the two hundreds or the three hundreds, like this is just basically the one hundreds. You could tell they're on a college campus because that's how a lot of smaller 
college campus basketball, um, you know, hockey, how that stuff's set up. So uh, right. to be in that arena, uh, it did look full, though, I thought, going through it. Um, of course, we get our intro video, which is a mashup of our two. Uh, we get the grave sites and the haunted mansion, if you will. Uh, what did you guys think of the haunted, uh, the, the intro video? I mean, this pretty much has been boilerplate. The same intro video we have seen from the, the previous two. It's kind of just a hybrid of them. Essentially, Frankensteining the two together with a little bit of current members of the card on there. And there you go. Let's get her started. I was going to say, I think that the uh, AV production crew is like, listen, we could uh, we could spend some money and get some new graphics here. And Jim Herder, whoever at the time, was like, no, 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 we have graphics at home. You don't need new flashy graphics. We have graphics at home. You don't play with that one. I spent a lot of money on that two years ago. Do you think, uh, I, I mean, we, we've just came from the In Your House series where we're seeing different videos and updated graphics and, and different individual cards every month. Do you think because this is a yearly event that if, if say, we were watching it after a year had passed, would we even remember, oh, this this looks new, they've added this little flair? I mean, they're so far removed from each other, I think they just figured, oh, we can just reuse the same the same ones because how many people are really going to, to know that? Yeah, notice the difference between them. Yeah, that's probably what part, part of the mentality was at the time. I mean, even your home video audience would have been limited because these videos weren't really, you know, the cheap $20 ones to buy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one thing that sticks out to me is the sets of the the entrances, um, different things that, that we I see. Um, I really love the cheesiness of it. Now, this pay-per-view, guys, there is a ton of awful wrestling on this pay-per-view, but I'm going to say it <laughs> up at the jump. I actually loved this. I thought this was so much fun to watch. Um, Absolutely. The cheesiness of it and just how ridiculous, we'll, we'll get into it, how ridiculous some of the matches are. Um, it just, I don't know what it was. I just really enjoyed it. And they really did lean into the Halloween theme more than I thought than the previous um, two events. So we are greeted with Jr. and Tony Schiavone. All right, so let's break this down. So Jr. and Tony Schiavone then throw it to a super young, super sexy vampire known as Eric Bischoff. Uh, young Bischoff here, man. You forget that, uh, just going to throw this out there, you forget that he was a model. Crazy. He's a good-looking dude. I thought he was a meat salesman at one point. Oh, well, I mean. No, didn't he sell, like, the karate fighters or something like that? <laughs> or some tag, laser tag game or something like that? Um, and I, oh, and him I, and Sonny Odo, I had some stuff going right, on. Yeah. That I do remember. Yeah, so, uh, uh, so he interviews Cactus Jack and Abdul the Butcher. Um, <laughs> uh, in, uh, they're outside the arena. Uh, what is going on with this? Because it's what? Ca- shirt and tie. It's Cactus. A- Abby looks like a mob boss coming in. We suited <laughs> up, man. It was great. Um, so Cactus, Abdul the Butcher. Then we get the Diamond Stud and DDP in the smallest clown car for, for two dudes that are six seven. Seen. I mean, this is fantastic stuff. Uh, we get Wyndham and, and uh, Dustin. Um, and the arm of Wyndham gets shattered in the car door by Zabisco. And what is going on? Shooting an angle to try to get ready for uh, a future upcoming clash of the champions where there will be a returning uh, mystery man that will end up t- tagging with Dustin to go against uh, Arn Anderson and Larry Zabisco for the tag titles. 
Yeah, so, you know, we've got the former horsemen now that are on opposite uh, sides here. We got Barry Windham as the face, and now Arn Anderson is tagging up with Larry Zabisco and planting the seeds for an upcoming feud. Now, do you think that they knew they were attacking Barry Windham, or do you think they thought they were attacking Sting? Oh, right. Yeah, it's interesting to think that Windham was in the main event of... <laughs> he main evented the last pay-per-view, and now he's opening the card. It's opening the door. Opening the door, literally. <laughs> Getting it shut on them. Um, one thing, too, I just noticed, because I, I love it, they're in the parking lot. You see these cars pulling up. But when the camera pans out, you realize they're not, like, on a road. They're literally just, like, in a in parking, a parking lot. lot. yeah. Like, yeah. like, in a random, it's not like it's a, it's a generic thing. But uh, that gets us in the mood. The one thing that I did not like, because they are in Tennessee, and when you think Halloween, at least we're up in the Northeast, we think fall we think it's going to be cool and you know you're going to see those fall leaves and damp and and spooky and it looked like a nice summer day in tennessee on that day so why don't we get into our first match of the evening guys because would you say this is one of the top three most infamous matches in halloween havoc lore uh i I think there's three i'll give you the infamous yeah i would say there's three like I guess wrestle crap moments in this. Of course, I think the Yeti showing up is isn't that a Halloween havoc? Right. Uh, and then of course the monster trucks on top of, um, Cope. you know the building where Big Show falls off or the giant. Yeah. And then I would say Chamber of Horrors for like the three most ridiculous, infamous moments. I, I would I would think like jump to your absolutely. Head. Maybe a long stretch fourth would have been the Hogan Warrior rematch, but ugh. yeah, so this whole gimmick of they're reusing the cage from two years ago uh, that we saw from our original show, the uh, Terry Funk Great Muda versus Sting Ric Flair match, reusing that cage, but then they're adding this additional component where a smaller cage that has basically the equivalent of an electric chair in it, uh, comes down randomly mid-match, and, you know, you just have to make sure you're not underneath this cage lowering that has the electric chair in it, comes down mid-match, and the goal, in order to win this four-on-four Chamber of Horrors match, is to incapacitate one of your opponents, lock them and shackle them in the chair, which then in, then you escape the, the door to the smaller cage and then you electrocute, so to speak, by pulling the switch, the switch that was gimmicked to the larger exterior cage of the entire uh, the match itself. So, oh, what a concept. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, so... All right, let's just go through the participants of the match. On our face team, we get El Gante, the Steiner Brothers, and Sting. And then on our heel team, we get Vader, the Diamond Stud, Cactus Jack, and Abdul the Butcher. Now, it's weird because you really don't know who's on the face side, who's on the heel the, side, because the, the way they're introduced. Crazy. Like, they bring out El Gigante first, and then they bring out, like, three of the of the heels and then, or all the heels, I believe, and then the Steiners and then Sting come out. It was just, it was crazy. Yeah, this really was a cluster of a match. Um, and then you forget, okay, so the Thunderdome, obviously, was a bigger cage. It wasn't attached to the ring. So there was some 
um, area to move on the outside of the K or on the outside of the ring. But when you had four, you had eight guys in there plus a referee. Um, and then you have the cage that comes down from the, there's no place for these guys to move. I mean, and they're all big, you know, the heels. I mean, look at the heels. Vader, uh, Scott Hall, Cactus Jack, and Abdul the Butcher. You're not talking about small guys. When Cactus either. is the smallest guy, it's crazy. And you also had, like, these makeshift caskets that were propped up in the corners, and uh, like, three or four of the corners of the cage. And, and there were, like, extra guys in the caskets that came out and were a part of the match, too. It, it, it was, yeah, it was unique. Booking. Oh, you mean the ghouls? You mean the ghouls? That no, there, there was, the, there the, was the ghouls, and then up. there were masked in men the in the caskets. It was just crazy. Oh, that's right. That's right. I forgot about the mask. There's so much going on in this. Uh, so I just want to bring up a few things before we actually get to the breakdown of the match. A couple of the notes that I have. Uh, we see the referee cam or the referee, uh, which I loved. I thought that was a great camera angle. I enjoyed the ridiculousness of it. Um, of course, the ghouls, uh, the switch that doesn't stay up. Of course, Mick Foley talks about this all the time, how the switch keeps falling down during the match. And you see them keep putting it back up right. when they go to wide shots. It's classic. And then, of course, how do you top everything else? But the ring catches on fire once again. Right. I mean, this match is awesome. I loved every second of it. But what did you guys? I, I loved the match. Uh, educator rewatching it, of course. It's not a good match, no, it's but not. it's just so ridiculous. You can find it. It's it's like a horror movie, like B-level it, right. horror movie it, at this it, point. It's meant to be super cheese, over the top, with, with, with a couple of great spots in it that were really cool to see. Uh, the finish at the end, where, when Abby is put into the chair and he gets electrocuted by an unknowing Cactus Jack not paying attention... Yeah, it's meant to be humorous, and then the post-match shenanigans were pretty fun. So, I'm just I'm here like wondering. All right, either of you see the World War Z movie? Of course. Okay. So, and and for listeners, the book is so much better, but that's a whole other story. So, in World War Z, there's a guy that will they come like the seventh man, the eighth man, whatever, and his job is let me think of the most ridiculous scenario. And look into it. Even if everyone else says it's ridiculous and will never happen, let me come up with a ridiculous idea and look into it because eventually I'm going to be right. Eventually there's going to be a situation where we will benefit from me looking into it. WCW should have had one to be like, hey, what if that switch falls? What if we just, no, 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 just unscrew it, turn it around, flip the on and off parts of it, and then it's pointing down, so Cactus has to climb up to switch it up. Then we don't have to worry about it falling during the match. And other things like, hey, how are we going to move in this confined space? We're going to use electricity and sparks. Are we sure it won't catch our ring on fire? Like, no one thought. It's it's fantastic, Kevin. How dare you? <laughs> oh, I'm not saying I didn't bad enjoy about this. it chamber of horrors match how dare you <laughs> I, I felt a kinship to it the, the holes in the cage are like the holes in my home <laughs> <laughs> that's true that is true um so educator i, I mean this match uh, you must have a litany of notes now we play a little game on here no, that is <laughs> should we read kevin's notes 
So, Educator, are you going to do the hot tag to Kevin on the Chamber of Horrors match? Am I going to reach for the hot tag to start the night off? I think I got this one. So, at the start of the match, we see an amazing Pearl River plunge that Scott Steiner does to the Diamond Stud as a whole melee of brawling just begins. Sting uh, somehow gets a hold of uh, Abdullah the Butcher's kendo stick. And just starts wailing Abby over the head with it. And then goes around and hits all the heels in the head. We see one of the caskets that is makeshift in the corner. It opens up and there is just a random masked jobber-like character who comes out. Uh, Scott Steiner just absolutely destroys and murders this poor guy that comes out of the actual casket. We see referee Nick Patrick and commentary make mention he's wearing what looks like a hockey helmet that has a camera attached to it, referred to as the referee. And we continue to see random shots from the perspective of Nick Patrick in the ring. We see Sting clotheslining Big Van Vader over the top rope onto the floor. And then he follows up with a slingshot. He pulls his body over the top rope and does a cross body over the top onto the floor onto Vader. In the background, back in the ring, we see the Steiners do a double-team top-rope DDT to Cactus Jack when uh, Rick Steiner picks up Cactus Jack on his shoulders and Scott grabs and does the DDT off the top rope. Right after that DDT move, we all of a sudden see the Chamber of Horrors uh, chair from the ceiling begin to lower, and commentary is even talking about, my goodness, like people are going to get crushed, and Cactus Jack, after taking that DDT off the top rope is like laying in the middle of the ring and almost gets crushed by it. And this chair is, it's ridiculously over the top size. It fills up almost half of the entire ring space. It's crazy. We see Vader uh, starting to work on Rick Steiner and pushing him into the chair, but Steiner is able to battle out and he ends up clotheslining Vader over the top rope back onto the floor. And then in the background on the ramp, we see eight dressed up white ghoul like characters coming down to the ring with a stretcher. The apparent idea is that they are waiting for the loser who gets electrified to have to be carried back out. The guys are just brawling all over the case. And we we cut to one angle where we see somehow big monsters, Abdullah the Butcher, about two-thirds of the way climbing up the top towards the top of this, like, rattly cage. It, it's just a crazy sight wondering, like, why hasn't the cage just buckled under his weight? Uh, we also sing, see Sting and Cactus Jack near the top of the cage, and they're ramming each other's head back and forth in the cage. The mass jobber that was destroyed by Scott Steiner is now somehow handcuffed to the cage and is getting beat down randomly by the faces and, and the heels. We see Sting beeling Cactus Jack over the top rope uh, into the cage onto the floor. Sting is uh, eventually forced into the Chamber of Horrors chair by the Diamond Stud. And the Diamond Stud's ready to lock him in, but Scott Steiner is able to make the save. The camera... Unfortunately, due to terrible shots, begins to start showing the 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 handle for the electrocution switch. It has fallen down to the on position mid-match, and then we see in the background uh, grips or text are just climbing up the cage to put it in the up position. All the men are just brawling all over wherever they can. 
uh, on the floorway because the ring is just full of the monstrous space for the actual electrocution chair. So we have a shot of just the referee all by himself in the ring with a Chamber of Horrors electric chair. Uh, Cactus Jack and Abdul the Butcher are clearly busted open from their forehead, bleeding all over the place. Cactus Jack starts climbing the cage towards the switch for some apparent reason. Not sure why there was nobody set up in the electrocution chair. We see Abdullah the Butcher and the Diamond Stud double team uh, and work on Rick Steiner to force him in the chair. But Scott Steiner does come in with a kendo stick and starts beating all the heels up to make the save. Uh, continued brawling back and forth where Rick Steiner and Abdullah the Butcher are not again next to the opening of the cage. And Steiner is forced back into the seat by Abdullah the Butcher. Cactus Jack is again climbing up to the top of the cage where the switch is. And Rick continues to fight back against Abdullah the Butcher and does a cool looking, it's impressive looking given how like large Abby is. He does like this belly to belly suplex to twist Abby's body around and force him into the chair. He locks his hands in and then we see Rick Steiner struggling to find the, the head helmet that is behind Abby's back and force it on. Apparently Cactus Jack is not paying attention. He's under the premise that it's Rick Steiner that's in the chair and he goes ahead and flips the switch and fireworks go off and the rings partially on fire and, and the match is luckily over. Uh, during this entire time, I do not remember anything memorable of Eligante being a part of the match whatsoever. <laughs> uh, but the winners sting Eligante and the Steiners more fun and interesting was post-match where Vader and the diamond stud, they're just looking at each other as Cactus Jack is screaming at Abdullah the Butcher trying to revive them. So Vader and the Diamond Stud, they just like, okay, we're done. We're getting out of here. We see Cactus Jack screaming, trying to revive Abdullah the Butcher. And then all of a sudden, Abby is revived and he kind of shoulder blocks out of the chair and knocks Cactus down. And then he goes on a crazy rage where he's trying to go up on the stage and attack the eight ghouls. But the problem is, is that because it took time for the cage to raise back up and then the production assistants, it took time for them to bring the ramp that they had to remove out. Abby is frustrated and stomps one of the production assistants in the head as he's trying to set up the ramp so that Abby has something to crawl, uh, walk across to attack all of the ghouls. So Cactus Jack and Abdullah the Butcher are attacking all of the white-faced powdery ghouls. And poor Abby just stumbles and falls over himself. It's just it's just a crazy sight. What an opening to the show. And, man, crazy to think about the things that were expected of how what could essentially follow to top that. Let me tell you. I don't have any people in mind right now. But considering the end of the previous Halloween Havoc and the ending of this match, it would have made a lot more sense if you had two similar looking people there instead of Rick Steiner and Abby, and then that could have covered for Cactus Jack sweaty with his hair and blood seeing, Oh, someone's in the chair. I can flip the switch. Even though the reversal has happened, like say Sting and Barry Windham again. Oh geez. Barry Windham as the heel put Sting in the chair. I Cactus Jack will flip the switch Sting and Barry Windham switch for the chair 
and Cactus electrifies his own teammate. Because Rick Steiner and Abdullah the Butcher do not look anything alike. At all. Um, why is this match first? <laughs> why is this match first? This should have been like the co-made event, put you know, a filler match in between this and the two out of three title match. But why is it first? I do not understand it. Um, hey, there's four guys in this ring, all talented, all amazing wrestlers, all you know, got a, a turn in a main event program along the way. Who's the only one to win a WWF world title? <laughs> not Sting, not Vader. <laughs> Cactus Jack. Like, not a thing that, you know, I would have predicted while watching this new. Um, why is everyone dirty? There's a point in this match where everyone looks like they were out digging their own graves. Like, just covered in filth. I'm not quite sure where... Was there, like, a, was there like a dirt pile somewhere? I'm wondering like... that I missed it. But that's the thing. We got the referee cam, and actually, throughout the night, there's a lot of interesting camera angles. I was like, okay, that's an angle you don't really see, and I, I was really enjoying it. But between... The cage setup, the amount of people in the ring, the the electric chair cage in there. I'm like, there is no space to see anything going on. There's no space for all the wrestlers. There's no space for a camera person to actually show us what's going on either. Like, it was just filmed so poorly. Honestly, it, it, you almost needed a hard cam on all four sides just to show everything that was going on in it. Um. I was trying to see if I could recognize any of the ghouls. If it's like someone that became a name later on, I didn't catch anything, nor did I catch anything for that mass wrestler that popped out of the um, uh, of the casket. Uh, I forget which announcer made the point, but there's an excellent point. There is no teamwork in this match, and there isn't. There is none. There's no, like, let's gang up on one person. But then that got me wondering, who the hell called this match? Because I really gotta imagine no one did. I don't think there was a ring general for this match at all. I think it was like, oh, okay, everyone go out there. At some point, there will be a signal for the finish. Uh, Cactus, Rick Steiner, Abdullah, you do the finish, and that's it. I think that was the only thing, the only direction given to any of them. How many times was the switch flipped, by the way? Again, with the camera angles. But, I mean, you had referees in production like trying to cover up constantly. But I, I forgot to get a count of it. Uh, at least I remember three or four times the switch had fallen down to the on position. It was ridiculous. All you had to do too, was just put a little piece of Velcro right, <laughs> to hold it up. Exactly. Like. Well, I mean, does Muda have a variety of miss? Cause he can take, he can spit a fire out. I wonder if he could like spit some sort of like a, a glue like substance there. Yes. I know Muda's not in the match. <laughs> I actually like the sparks in the fire at then though, for as ridiculous as an ending as it was, I actually really liked it. And it was kind of because it was all safe and contained. It was kind of funny seeing the little spots of fire on the ring on the mat too. Right. It's, it's a fun, dumb match, right? It's a perfect B movie, B horror movie thing. Yeah. It's meant to be cheesy over the top entertainment. And that's what it was. Um, so on that note, guys, I want to talk to one person listening right now. Okay. Triple H. I know you're listening to us. Hi, Paul. We have your we have your ear. Hi, Mr. Helmsley. You do the in your house. You, you do the haunted house show. We'll let you know. You know, you're doing Halloween Havoc. We'll let you know what we're doing if we do a third season, what we're doing. Um, on your NXT Halloween Havoc special, 
please have a Chamber of Horrors cinematic match at the Gargano House. Ooh. I don't know. Dexter Loomis can be there. Brazongo. You figure that out. Figure out who you want to push. But I feel like Gargano and Candice in a Chamber of Horrors match, they would do it justice and make it cinematic. I mean, have fun with it. Be over the top. Just throwing that out there. What, what do you guys think of that idea? I, I, I signed me up for another year of the network. I mean, I'd be all for it. And honestly, I, I'm, at this point, I'm a little scared to put things out into the ether because whatever our season three is, I'm wondering what the NXT version of it will be. Yeah, I'm, uh, well, hopefully our, uh, we're still waiting on uh, Arcade 1-Up to announce the WWF WrestleFest arcade <laughs> machines, but we know it's coming eventually, so I can feel it, I can feel it. But uh, why don't we throw it to Mr. Eric Bischoff, who's dressed up like Dracula now. Um, he's with Missy Hyatt, and they talk to, of course, everyone's favorite WCW tag team, the Young Pistols. Young Pistols, who last year were going by the name of the Southern Boys, must be they wanted to reinvent themselves to try to get away from the uh, stereotypical characters that they were once portraying. <laughs> They're trying to get away from the stereotypical characters. Oh, good, because the Young Pistols are groundbreaking. They are, the baby. Stereotypical characters. <laughs> How come we never got the dream match of the Young Pistols versus the Smoking Guns that everyone has been clamoring for? I mean, that's a real injustice. Young Pistols are jokingly healing about the Patriots, uh, and wanting to be contenders for the U.S. Tag Team Championship. And uh, we got Missy and Bischoff discussing who they think, uh, you know, who the identity of the Halloween Phantom is. Missy claims she knows, but she doesn't have the scoop. She doesn't have the inside step. So it is what it is. Getting us ready for our next match. There's a there's a very interesting love affair here in this segment. And it is a love between the camera and Missy Hyatt. She's she's fantastic on this. Treats can have Sunny. I I'm very impressed with Misty Hyatt. Misty Hyatt's becoming the the D'Lo Brown of the Halloween Havoc series. So we follow that up with everyone's favorite punk band, The Creatures, taking on everyone's favorite rapper, PM News, and everyone's favorite country star, Big Josh. This is the most WTF thing until later things than the night. Yeah, so I actually wrote what is happening in this match or why is this match even happening? But I do have a question for you guys is where does PN News rapping skills rank for people that rap out to the ring? Is it Bariqua levels? Is it uh, is it better than that? Um, who else? Have we, is it Oscar? Where, where is it? Oh, it is worse than Bariquas. Let me tell you, I, I can at least follow really? along with the Bariquas. I'd put them above Bariquas. Oh, all right. So, uh. Of course, uh, match number two, the why is this match happening? The first one of the event. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, uh, Kevin, you seem to, I mean, you know the creatures. You followed their career through CBGBs and all the other punk groups. So maybe this one would be a good one for him to hot tag him in. I'm reaching. Educator. I'm reaching. Oh, but I'm going to snatch it back. Aww. So the creatures come out, and I don't know if... For if this was their actual music, but they come out to what we would know as being Psychosis's music during his WCW run. I truly believe this was probably a music overplay to whatever was realistically played back in 91. We've got PN News and Big Josh. For those who do not know, Big Josh was Matt Bourne 
who actually also in WWF lore ended up becoming the original Doink the Clown. And uh, PN News went on to a little bit more of W or ECW fame, was a member of the, the group. I believe they were called the Dabaldis, and it was just referred to as News. He, he just had some really awful MC rapping like tone, trying to get the crowd up and going. And it was definitely not working. I was actually impressed with Big Josh in terms of like like his physique, how he looked. I mean, this guy was like, you know, what we referred you Kevin had referred to as, you know, farm strong. He was just a big, big dude. Uh, crazy how he ended up portraying the Doink the Clown character probably about a year and a half or so later from this. Uh, the actual creatures, these two characters, um, one of them was basically WCW glorified jobber jumping Joey Mags under a mask. I, I couldn't find out who out the other character was, but I mean, this honestly should have been like a WCW Saturday night match. We see Big Josh firing what is referred to as creature number two into the corner. And then he helps Irish Whip PN News into the creature who does an avalanche into the creature in the corner. PN News then hits a drop kick, and it was actually an impressive looking drop kick given his size to one of the creatures after he Irish whipped that creature into the ropes. The creature tries to gouge the eyes to PN News and is successful, and he tags in and out, and they go back and forth working on uh, PN News. But PM News' majority of his offense was continuous belly bumps to knock over one of his opponents. Big Josh finally tags back in. He hits an axe handle off the top rope and then hits a stiff-looking belly-to-back suplex onto one of the creatures. Big Josh then back body drops a creature and tags back in PN News. PN News sets up for another avalanche into the corner and ends up missing. Both the creature and PN News are able to tag out. Uh, Big Josh and the new creature back in are in the ring. Big Josh is able to belly belly suplex the fresh creature that had just tagged in. Big Josh does an over the shoulder power bomb that the commentary kind of like glossed over, uh, but it was a, a really impressive looking stiff power bomb under creature number one. We see Big Josh then land what we commonly referred to as the earthquake vertical splash, sit out splash. Uh, he referred to it as, or commentary referred to it as the Northern Exposure Splash. Uh, then he's close enough to the corner that he tags in PM News, who climbs to the top rope and does basically a falling-like splash off the top for the big one, two, three pin. Thank goodness this is over. <laughs> like, I want to say PM News jumped off the, t- the turnbuckle. I'd say he flopped off of it. And then was there the Big Josh... Northern exposure there. Was that called the whoopee cushion when he was doink? He he did it off the top rope when he was doink. Okay. But yeah, he did it like, you know, John Tenta's Canadian Earthquake, you know, deal uh in WCW. It was yeah. called Northern Exposure. Hey, big Josh looks great here. Looks phenomenal. Looks like twice as big as I thought Doink was. Um, and then it just makes you there's a long list of guys. It's like, geez, I wish they would have done more with that. Um, but eventually, like, how many how many wrestlers can we pick of, oh, I wish they would have done more. 
um when news got up for that drop kick i was just looking at him i'm like there's no way he's 400 pounds like i mean he's a big dude don't get me wrong but i was like i do not think he's 400 pounds and getting his big ass up for that drop kick at all for it uh i hated the match at first because i'm like we just had chamber of horrors and now we have a glorified squash on a pay-per-view for no good reason here but as a match to okay hey we gotta get the crowd calm down after chamber of horrors and then you know start building the action back up it makes sense i guess but it's still you're right it should have been a saturday night match maybe a pre-show match maybe a, a dark match get the crowd hyped up i don't know um treats i was just wondering because you did some research on the first in your house for the kid that won the house did you look up the woman that won the rap contest from wcw magazine i i, I did not oh. um yeah she did not want to be on camera she either she was very she was worried about ruin her street cred um but and you know i'm just looking at pn news and that outfit is not flattering at all for many reasons his size the color lots of it it, it reminded me of a bad decision i made at college one night yeah and what was that i i tried to not talk about it well you were young and you were young and needed the money so <laughs> i call it a favor for a friend okay so my question to you guys is this debut by the creatures is it the second best debut of attack team in haunted and <laughs> halloween havoc history next to doom currently Ooh, also in mask. That's that's next. I I I mean, it's it's a far second. It's a doom had time to be first place and do a lap and a victory march and have dinner, take a nap, go to the gym, come back next morning, and then they come in second for sure. All right. So uh, why don't we move on uh, to my next favorite game? Is where does the set go? Because we've had people coming out of the set, coming out of the haunted mansion or whatever it is and then they just put a curtain in front of it and they get rid of it for no reason for the next uh the next match which is match number three on the night it is beautiful bobby eaton taking on terrence taylor with alexandra york in his corner um what did you guys think of this match uh this could be in the discussion for best match of the night in my opinion uh, I was impressed with this match. I never thought I'd ever say I was impressed with the work of Terry Taylor. Uh, this is Alexandra York's rebranding of the York Foundation since Mike Rotunda is no longer a part of WCW. He actually went to WWF and is now being referred to as Erwin R. Scheister. So they ended up taking Terry Taylor and having him be the focal point now, the new main guy and the York Foundation. Bobby Eaton is now a singles competitor. Uh, we had discussed last year right after Halloween Havoc 1990 that Jim Cornette and Stan Lane, frustrated with the direction of the team that the booking committee, namely Ole Anderson, uh, was having for their future, how you know Jim Cornette and Stan Lane left. And Bobby Eaton decided to just continue working and they allowed him to be a single star. And he actually had a pretty good run. He had a TV title run where he defeated Arn Anderson earlier in the year. And then I believe he lost that championship to stunning Steve Austin. So 
He's they're in their WCW rankings and he's in the top 10 at this point. And, uh, they're looking to determine who may be the next challenger for one of the singles titles in WCW. I like this match. I also like this match a lot. I had little, uh, notes in the margin about discussing this match. And the only thing I would have against it is, you know, all the interviews and podcasts and shoots and stuff that we've watched and listened to over the years. There's certain wrestlers that say, you know, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to get noticed tonight. I'm going to put on a hell of a match. Two of us are going to put on a great match and we're going to come back and say, beat that. And I think these two did that. But then I think two other people later in the evening said, we accept your challenge. Yeah. All right, why don't you go ahead and uh, break this one down? All right, we see Terry Taylor start the match with an arm drag takeover with Bobby Eaton and then is successful with a similar attempt for a second time. As he goes for a third one, Bobby is able to reverse that third attempt to do a pair of his own arm drags and then clotheslines Taylor, who then sneaks out of the ring and tries some stalling tactics and touching base with Alexandra York and checking out the computer. Eventually, both men end up on the floor, and Bobby Eaton is Irish whipped into the guardrail as Terry Taylor attempts to charge in. Bobby Eaton essentially kind of back body drops Taylor over the guardrail towards the fans. Back in the ring, Bobby Eaton is working a hammerlock on Taylor as Taylor is down on the canvas. Uh, Both men brawl to the outside, spill out over to where the ramp is. Bobby Eaton sets up a unique combo where he atomic drops uh, Terry Taylor, whose body flings into the ropes by the ramp, bounces off the ropes. Bobby Eaton then scoops him up and does a body slam. And then he sets himself up so that he, Bobby Eaton, can then climb to the top rope, face the outside ramp, and dives off the top rope towards the entrance ramp where Terry Taylor was laid out from the body slam. To me, it looked more like Bobby Eaton did a splash off the top rope, but the announcers referred to it as he dropped a knee onto Taylor's body coming off the top rope onto the ramp. We see uh, Bobby Eaton get knocked from the ring apron later on in the match to the guard uh, onto the guardrail onto the floor from Terry Taylor. We see Terry Taylor follow out onto the floor after that knockdown where he does a stiff clothesline to Bobby Eaton to knock him down. Eventually, both men are back up again on the rampway itself, and Terry Taylor hits this awesome-looking uh, sit-out gut-wrench powerbomb. Uh, to continue to work on Bobby Eaton's back. Carrie Taylor uh, throws Bobby Eaton back into the ring, climbs to the top rope, unfortunately hits a very weak-looking splash off the top rope, but is capable of getting a two-count from referee Randy Anderson. Eventually, Bobby Eaton's back out on the floor, climbs back up to the apron, and then climbs up to the top rope and hits a sunset flip off the top rope for a long two-count. On to Terry Taylor. Back and forth action between the two. Eventually we see Bobby Eaton hitting a jawbreaker and then tries to follow up with a top rope splash, but Taylor Taylor gets his knees up and Bobby Eaton splashes Taylor's knees. Bobby Eaton eventually battles back and gets Taylor in the corner and climbs to the second rope for the 10 punches and uh, then eventually follows up with a vertical suplex for a two count. Bobby Eaton hits a swinging neck breaker, 
onto Terry Taylor and attempts to climb to the top rope, thinking he was going to be able to hit his Alabama jam. But Terry Taylor gets up and follows Bobby Eaton under the ropes, uh, hits him in the gut, and then sits up, sets up Terry Taylor. Terry Taylor sets up Bobby Eaton for a superplex, but Bobby Eaton is able to battle back from that superplex attempt and hit him with a forearm to the head that knocks Terry Taylor back down into the ring. And Bobby Eaton, being Bobby Eaton, hits that amazing-looking Alabama Jam leg drop off the top rope onto Terry Taylor for a huge pop from the crowd and gets a 1-2-3 pinfall victory uh, over Terrence Taylor and the York Foundation. Educators right here, this was a fantastic match that I did not see coming at all. When the two guys came out, I did not think it'd be this great. One of the things that adds to it, bring back the ranking system. That added so much importance to what is a nothing match, really. But for... It it could have been a throwaway match. It could have meant nothing. But everything felt important for either of them to move up in title contention. Terry Taylor, I wrote down, look at Terry H here. Like, between the the swagger and the ponytail and and everything about his presentation at first, he looks like Hunter Selmsley coming in to WWF and the early In Your House series stuff. Um, For my own curiosity... And to let you guys know, because I was wondering while watching this, Alexandra York here is 25 years old. She is fantastic here. And one of her best managerial roles is hiding that screen from the camera at all times, because I guarantee her computer there was not actually on or had anything on it. So I think if the camera got a good angle of it, they would see just a turned off screen. Does a fantastic job of hiding that. Um, it was interesting, though, while she, while she had the computer out, that Jim Ross, who has his podcast now, at the time is talking about how unfamiliar he is with computers. And, you know, credit to him for growing in the past 30 years there. I think that this whole York Foundation gimmick would be a great idea today. I would love to see this redone today. I think you could take some guys that are extremely talented, but don't have a good gimmick, don't have a good story, don't have a good push and completely reinvent them and get them going and and move them into title pictures here. It's such a good, like, Hey, I'm a manager. Let me bring you on here. Let me give your career the push it needs. And then you can reinvent a character that's already been there for years. Would that make more sense if instead of Alexandra York, it was Robert Stone? It would make sense, but he also kind of needs to be reinvented too. Like he needs someone to reinvent him so then he can be that kind of character. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, he's just a, a comedy character. But if they did take him seriously, you know, he that would have been a good role for him with the idea. I mean, that's a more modernized Robert Stone brand. Let me show you how to post to social media and get a TikTok. You know what I mean? You really could play into that. I mean, honestly, to be like, hey, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? You need some motivation. You need some guidance here. You need to stop wallowing. It's kind of what MVP's doing with the Hurt Business, too. And then all these guys get these pu- you know, pushes and, and revitalized here. But gee, Terry Taylor is so good here. It makes you so much more upset about the whole Red Rooster gimmick. Because the Terry Taylor you see here, I picture years later he would have been an internet darling 
he would have been a person that they're like oh he needs big ring of honor champion evolve champion nxt champion and all like wrestling fans today would have loved him and it's just a shame that he's so well known for this horrible gimmick that he gets in wwf so then we follow that up with match number four on the night which is jimmy jam garvin with michael ps hayes taking on johnny b bad with theodore long what an interesting, interesting match. Johnny B. Bad debuted earlier in the summer and is doing this unique gimmick that we haven't seen, or at least a spinoff, I guess, maybe of like an exotic Adrian Street. You know, he's doing it obviously because of the, the, the comparison. He's, you know, a fancy little Richard kind of character, but with the boxing gimmick as well and the whole tutti fruity glitz and glamour. Uh, T- Teddy Long, I, I don't remember. To me, he looked like bigger jacked, I guess. When he was with the skyscrapers, I always just remember, you know, little Peanut Long, Teddy Long being the super thin, frail guy. To, he just looked so much bigger. Uh, the Freebirds, oh boy, they've unfortunately they. I feel that they've run their course, and you know they had a tag title run earlier in the year. Uh, you know, unsuspectingly beating Doom for the tag team championship with Diamond Dallas Page as their like manager. Uh, that ran that ran its course really really quick, and now they're they're trying to be face team. They're We're in Chattanooga, Tennessee, but we're trying to get the crowd on our side with the Atlanta Braves, Tomahawk Chop. I'm not exactly getting why all of a sudden they're like huge Atlanta Braves fans, but, you know. Oh, I can tell you. Tell me. Because they're well aware of who signs their checks now. Yeah, that's true. That makes sense. So it it, it was an interesting match. There was a couple of great-looking spots that, unfortunately, that got botched. That's top rope sunset flip that Johnny V. Bad does diving about, you know, almost halfway across the ring. So super high. If he would have been able to just tuck it and roll it better. Oh, my goodness. What a thing of beauty that would have been. Uh, The DDT that's hit towards the end of the match was great looking. Unfortunately, the botched finish with the, the leg on the rope that really wasn't caught well. How the referee didn't realize the leg was on the rope when it was draped over his body kind of deal. It, it was for what it was. It, it, okay. Mid card match. Hallions. It's a good learning match. Johnny B. Bed needs to be in there with someone more experienced, a veteran person, uh, someone to learn from, get timing down, you know, uh, work in the crowd, all sorts of stuff like that. This is a good person to put him with, but he's certainly not. He's, he's not at the level Jimmy Garvin's at, and it shows. This was a nothing match to me. Once again, another nothing match. You know, we, we talked about on the last show when uh, Shane McMahon showed up and didn't watch, you know, all of the scheduled matches um, that we, we thought the pay-per-view was really enjoyable because it w- was only two hours. Um, you know, going through the card, there is 11 matches on here. You could make a real good two hours out of this. Right. Yeah, because they are just jam packing the car just to just to fill it. So, uh, but why don't we go ahead and uh, educator? Why don't you uh, break this one down for us? I'm reaching, I'm reaching, reaching for the. No, I think I'm gonna hold off. 
So we see the start of the match with Johnny B. Bad with Garvin. Bad hits a, a left hook into the body of Garvin to knock him back in the corner. Garvin eventually recovers and hip tosses Bad over the top rope onto the floor after each man numerously tried to counter back and forth, trying to do hip tosses. Garvin hits a good-looking power slam onto Johnny B. Bad as uh, Johnny B. Bad is uh, coming and rebounding off the ropes. Garvin himself hits the ropes and hits a vicious-looking forearm that knocks Johnny B. Bad out through the ropes to the floor. Johnny B. Bad hits a running clothesline to Garvin back in the ring and begins to work a reverse chin lock and a choke uh, onto Garvin. And at one point, he ends up getting uh, Teddy Long's towel. As Teddy Long is distracting the referee, he begins to choke Garvin with that towel and then eventually tosses that towel out onto the floor. We see Jimmy Garvin reversing an Irish whip into the corner and uh, is able to essentially put a foot up and run or bet Johnny B. Bad uh, gets Beal in the corner and then he follows in and runs into Johnny B. Bad's boot. Uh, Johnny B. Bad climbs to the top rope, hits an amazing looking top rope sunset flip. But unfortunately, the way that Garvin rolled back. And the, just the crazy momentum of Johnny B. Bad, they didn't roll through completely. It was an a, amazing dive until you know the actual forward roll that was supposed to happen. Bad did the best he could. He still got a two count out of it. Uh, Johnny B. Bad body slams Garvin and then climbs to the top rope and hits a top rope elbow for a two count. We see Johnny B. Bad trying to climb the top rope again for uh, an axe handle off the top rope. But Garvin does catch him in the gut and with a shot in the gut as he's coming down. Bad misses a running diving elbow into the corner and the momentum causes him to flow through the ropes onto the floor. Back in the ring, both men are running the ropes and somehow I think it was just a weird mistiming. They both jump up in the air as if they're trying to do a leapfrog to each other, but they end up like almost headbutting each other and they both fall down to the campus, uh, down to the canvas. Johnny B. Bad sets up for his infamous left hook, you know, like swing for his finish. But Garvin was able to duck and Garvin was able to hit a very solid looking stiff DDT. It got a huge pop from the crowd. As soon as that DDT was hit, Teddy Long is up on the apron to distract the referee to stop a, a potential actual count for from that DDT. Jimmy Garvin gets up. And notices that Teddy Long's on the apron and attempts to chase Teddy Long off the apron. In that time, Bad is able to recover from that DDT. He hits the left hook. And Jimmy Garvin falls down near the ropes. Referee's body is positioned by the ropes as well. And we get the pinfall attempt. One, two, three. In the process of Johnny B. Bad pinning uh, Jimmy Garvin. Jimmy Garvin puts his foot on the rope, and, but in doing so, he had to drape his foot over the referee's body to get it onto the rope. And Teddy Long pushes the foot off of the rope, off of the ref's body, but somehow the referee wasn't uh, able to process that the foot was on the rope. Post match, after the one, two, three pinfall win for Johnny B. Bad, suddenly now Michael Hayes' arm that was in a sling. He's apparently not injured at all and ends up chasing Teddy Long into the ring and then hits Teddy Long with a vicious left hand to knock him down. 
And that's it for the match. The Freebirds attempt to celebrate in the ring, even though that Jimmy Garvin lost the match. <sighs> I mean, I mean, they got to celebrate the Braves, I guess. I wonder if this is one of their World Series years. I know, I know they had a lot of them, but you know, the 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 sports is not my forte. Um, this is where I wrote down that apparently Chattanooga isn't that far from everywhere from anywhere. Because this was a multiple reference from Jim Ross on where they are. Um, speaking of Jim Ross, real good point with you have two wrestlers with a very quick finishing maneuver. The DDT and the kiss that don't miss. The punch there that can come at any time out of nowhere. Take your opponent down. I was like, you know, that's a good point. You're not going up to the top rope. You're not sending up a submission move. It's just, you know, in a second you can change the course of the match. It's an excellent point. Then he follows it up by saying, oh, they're tough because they wrestle when, they, when they're when they hurt. I'm like, oh, that's not a thing we talk about anymore. Remember? We're supposed to pretend that they're all tested and cleared and stuff. <sighs> the Johnny B... Is Johnny B. Bad gimmick so weird to see for you guys now, 30 years later, nearly? Like, not only the effeminate part of it, but, I mean, honestly, I'll say it you also have a black man doing it as well. And I think, you know, there's certain, there's certain people that don't like either. And you're presenting him as a heel. Right. It's very interesting. Speaking of interesting, I want to talk about Jimmy Garvin's body. How does he look like he has out of shape dad bod and is jacked at the same time? Yeah, it's crazy. Michael Hayes, you know, he's he's definitely, you know, past his prime in terms of physical condition. But Garvin, you look at him, he's skinny, but then he's skinny fat, but then he looks like he's jacked. Yeah, I get it. Absolutely. You're like, you're not sure if he's like on a new cycle of meds or he's putting his body through one more final run and he's trying to get back into shape and he's you know, making actual decent progress to get there. He never really was a big body guy, but he kind of sort of looked impressive here. It, it It's like having a coworker or a friend that you always assume is out of shape. And then you're at a pool party and like, where the hell did that come from? Like, it's just, it's so odd. He's great in this. He's absolutely teaching Johnny B. Bad, you know, how, how to work a match here. Teddy Long's helping a lot. Um, Michael Hayes is just faking that injury and winking at the camera because that's, you know, what he does. It's not bad at all. It's it's a perfectly fine match. I Again, I do not understand why it's a pay-per-view quality match. Just adding a bunch of a little more trick-and-treats to the card. I don't know. They're just, they're just packing the card up. I mean, well, what if Johnny B. Bed's bed blaster shot out like candy? That would be cool. So uh, why don't we follow that up with uh, Kevin's favorite, Missy Hyatt, and she wants to know who the Halloween Havoc Phantom is. And in comes into the frame comes beautiful Bobby Eaton. He's carrying a pumpkin, guys, and he says he's going to celebrate. So what exactly is he doing with that pumpkin? I don't know, but if I just want a pretty decently high-profile match, a very competitive match that actually came and presented quite well on national television and pay-per-view i know i'd celebrate with a pumpkin all right on that note why don't we uh take a quick little commercial break promotional consideration paid for by the following 
total. The Retro Network presents the TRN Haunted Halloween. 31 days and nights of spooky themed fun from pop culture's past and present. A full month of podcasts, videos, online features, and giveaways to make the hair on your neck stand up. TRN's Haunted Halloween will also haunt your social media channels with even more shocking goodies. Get the full experience by dropping into the TRN VIP lounge for more bone-chilling excitement than you can handle. Subscribe to the Retro Network podcast channel wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to the TRN YouTube page. Follow TRN on your favorite social media channel at TRN Social. And visit theretronetwork.com daily for all the chills and thrills. There's no tricks, only treats as the Retro Network presents the TRN Haunted Halloween all month long in October. Hello, everyone. This is Maddie Treats from the House Show Podcast. And if you're like me, you must be unsure what to serve your trick-or-treaters this Halloween season. I mean, you can choose from Snickers, there's Hershey Kisses, there's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I mean, what's a person to do? But with everything going on in the world this year, maybe we should actually try to help out the little guys in our community. So, I say we should all pack into a caravan and head over to Kevin Hellions' house. Yeah, you're probably not sure exactly where that is located. Just look for the house with a hole in it. And you're probably not sure who Kevin Hellions is. Well, he's the person that has yum written on his chest in permanent marker. Now, once we get to his house, let's knock on that door and you will be greeted by a man holding a severed gummy bear. That's right, a severed gummy bear. And then, if you are lucky enough, he will slice you off a piece of that gummy bear. So guys, this Halloween season, let's bring everyone together. There's too much division in the world. And let's all go to the Kevin Hellions Whole House. That's right, the Kevin Hellions Whole House. Because you see, this Halloween season, Gummy Baron means Gummy Karen. And ladies and gentlemen, we be Gummy Sharon. All right, and we are back and we followed everything up with match number five on the night. It is, guys, we get the debut of stunning Steve Austin with Lady Blossom taking on Dustin Rhodes for the television title. Um, so a couple questions I have for you guys um, is should a television title be defended on a pay-per-view? Um, in the words of the honky tonk man, uh, what would you call that device that one must have in order to be able to observe a pay-per-view? A television? I was going to go cable box. Oh, I'm going no. to illegal stream from another country. Oh, there. <laughs> Satellite provider. There it is. I mean, I understand that it would. So then should the television title never be defended on a house show? Is that the... There, that, there yeah. you go. Yeah, exactly. No. Um, yeah. I, good match between Steve Austin, Dustin Rhodes. Definitely like the color uh, that happened in, in the match itself. 
lots of back and forth action. Uh, Lady Blossom is actually Steve Austin's first wife. So interesting to see uh, Ginny, so to speak. And she was actually the one that uh, came up with the Stone Cold name when he had uh, first uh, entered uh, enter WWE. I mean, you see Lady Blossom and, and continue to look. I looked up the poster that was mentioned during this match as well. And then you see a later wife of his in Deborah, and it's obvious someone has a type. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, he definitely has a type. So, Educator, why don't you go ahead and break this one down for us? Hot Jack, I figured it would have been one of the next two matches. Yeah, that was my guess as well. I am stunned. Are you stunning? Not stunning. Masked library. <laughs> the stunned masked library. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for Kevin Hellion's Halloween Havoc breakdown of the night. All right. God, this is when I question my notes. Gotta make sure Stun- you're we're ready to work, man. Stunning Steve Austin, TV champ, with Lady Blossom. Wow. Versus the natural Dustin Rhodes. Yes, the wow is in my notes. Dustin is a kid here, 21 years old. Look at Austin. Look at Austin's tights. Look at Lady. Ross puts over Austin. 15 minute time limit? Grandma Rhodes. Check out the mat wrestling. I see Stone Cold here, but I don't see Gold Dust. Wow, I liked Terry versus Bobby a lot, but this is better. More passion. Oh, the poster is a double fold-out. Austin punches Dustin open. Austin off top rope, axe handle to Dustin on the floor. Dustin goes for monkey flip. Austin stuffs it. Austin clothesline. Dustin flips. Inside cradles reversals. Four minutes left. This match builds. Lady Blossom slaps Dustin. Fight outside. Two minutes. Hook a leg, Dustin. Austin bleeding. Bionic elbow. Two count. One minute left. Pee Wee Anderson on the ropes. You're wasting time, Dustin. 30 seconds. Bell rings as Austin kicks out at two anyways. Draw. Maybe top five. But the ending. What about the ending? I need to know more. You're leaving me hanging here. Sell me <laughs> on it, sir. So, Kevin, from from your notes, um, it sounds like this was your favorite match of the night. Uh, yeah. Okay. And then, educator, your favorite match of the night was the Bobby Eaton Terrence Taylor match. I only because it ha- did have a clean finale to it, a finality to it with the with the pinfall. I mean, I get what they're trying to accomplish with Steve Austin, you know, running the time limit draw. Uh, fantastic back and forth match between the two. The color that both end up getting, you know, can it just added to the match. The, the involvement with Lady Blossom. No, I, I very much like the match. I just, I, for me, I preferred, you know, a, a, a cl- an actual clear cut finish. Oh, okay. So, and I had a, I had a, a, a different match that I liked best on the card. Oh, crazy. 
really? just wanted to I just wanted to to clarify that. So any educator, I think Kevin pretty much nailed that match with his notes. I mean, you I mean, anything you want to add? I, I, I I've got nothing. The the suspense to the finish. It's got me wanting more, baby. All right. So why don't we go right into a Starcade 91 commercial? And then we follow that up with, okay, so this block of matches coming up here makes no sense whatsoever. Why they are on the card, who knows? Uh, so match number six is Oz taking on Bill Kazmaier. Uh, educator, why don't you just go ahead? I mean, these these are nothing matches. Just go ahead and uh, break this one down real quick for us. So... T- to me, Kevin Nash with his haircut, the basically sting flat top blonde haircut, you know, when he originally debuted it, he had the silver hair and now it's just bleach blonde. It's just, it's so weird to see a younger Kevin Nash, um, you know, with that haircut, you know, I've sent both of you guys uh, a couple of pictures uh, of Kevin Nash later in his career and, and how thin and frail his legs were and issues with that, you know, forced him into retirement and so on. Um, Nash, he looks good in these regular wrestling gear tights, so to speak. He, he not fully big and as jacked as we you know, know him from later in his career, but it's very, very, at least impressive early in his career. Uh, we see at the start of the match, Kazmaier with a headlock to Oz. Kazmaier runs the ropes and hits a stiff clothesline to uh, to Oz, to Kevin Nash. There's a test of strength back and forth. Kazmaier ends up winning or is winning until Oz essentially kicks him in the gut to get Kazmaier down. Kazmaier then still with the test of strength is able to muscle back and forces uh, Oz's hands to the mat and ends up stomping on both of Oz's hands. Kazmaier reverses an Irish whip uh, to Oz in the corner and then ends up hip-locking uh, Oz over onto the canvas. Oz is able to hit a belly-to-back suplex onto Kazmaier and goes for a pin count and gets a count of two. Kazmaier somehow gets on the apron, knocked down, and as he's sitting on the apron, he grabs the ropes and essentially does the skin the cat that Ricky Steamboat is known for and is able to pull himself back up over the top rope back into the ring. He hits a running clothesline to knock Oz down and then picks up Oz and puts him in the human torture rack and gets a uh, submission victory over Oz. I guess now that since Luger is using the pile driver, which was called the attitude adjustment as his finish, that the torture rack, I guess, was up for use for Kazmar. It's an entertaining match for what it is, I thought. I like Oz's contacts. I love that Kevin Nash loves money. And it was just like, he will do anything as long as it means he's making more money or feels it puts him in a position to make more money in the future. So, oh, this gimmick and I got a pay-per-view match, whatever. I don't care. Bill carrying the globe to the rings. Fantastic. I absolutely loved it. Um, he, even though Kazmaier is smaller than Kevin Nash, he is so wide, he makes Nash look small. Uh, the test of strength there makes a lot of sense. Oz's height versus Bill's width, I guess. His, someone his size should not have been able to do that skin the cat move. I was actually really impressed that he was able to pull that off. Torch correct looked good, especially on a big, you know, big dude like Kevin Nash. Again, it's 
it's a TV match. It's not a pay-per-view match, but I was all right with it. Kazmaier does nothing with the rest of his career, though, right? Like, this is probably the peak of it. At one point, there is a time where Scott Steiner gets injured and uh, a torn tricep, I believe. And Kazmaier ends up being like the de facto tag partner for Rick Steiner for a while. And I think at one point they may have actually challenged for the tag titles. But he, um, his time happened prior to him being in WCW here uh, on the, I believe, the ESPN tough, uh, the you know strongman competitions and so on. He ended up then in the future become like commentator to future events and stuff like that. But in terms of like wrestling ring action, just this stint WCW was it. All right, and then we move on to match number seven of the night, which is Van Hammer taking on. Pretty boy Doug Summers. Um what do you what do you want to say about this one, educator? I actually I have, you know, some decent notes, decent questions regarding this match. Um for the both of you who may not be aware who Doug Summers was or you know at the time, he actually is a former AWA tag team champion. He was tagging up with Playboy Buddy Rose. And they were feuding with uh, Shawn Michaels and Mario Gennetti, the Midnight Rockers, and they exchanged the tag titles back and forth. I don't know how Doug Summers ended up in WCW for what this appears to be a one-off match because I don't remember anything else with Doug Summers after this or before it. So Van Hammer is just coming in into WCW and, you know, there's been a lot of joking reputation about his ability, his in-ring style and so on. I don't know about whether or not the botches in this match that we see are the fault of Doug Summers being, you know, towards, you know, struggling in the match, different rings, you know, or whatever. Or if the botches are the result of just Van Hammer rushing things and and forcing things too hard and causing Summers to trip and fall. Um, uh, Hellions, what what were your thoughts on some of the botches that you saw? Oh, um, for a little little alliteration here, the sloppy slingshot suplex. Yeah, I thought Summers was going to die. Like yeah, his head is so was close bad. to spiking, it was crazy. I don't know how WWF didn't go for Van Hammer, just size alone. Right. I mean, it's an interesting gimmick, and it, it it's the type of cartoony like gimmick you think that Vince was you know would have been into big time. Surprised, you know, but instead we ended up getting that Man Mountain Rock. Yeah. I mean, this this isn't a match for pay-per-view. This isn't even a match for TV. This is a no. match for, like, a house show. Like yeah. First match house show, try stuff out. Um, right. I didn't realize it was Doug Summers. I thought Tommy Rich was back as soon as I saw that body. Oh, gosh. Um, It looked like an Attitude Era Tess versus Pat Patterson match. <laughs> I love it. Jeez. Like, <laughs> And and then why? Because like Treats was talking about the entrance ramp and what comes and goes and how they adjust it and all. Why are there jackhammers? Why? I and, dis- and I know what you're thinking. I, I know you have a, a logic there for why jackhammers are there. But I counter that Jackal's hit rock song "Lumberjack" because maybe that's why they had it. It is WCW. Maybe that was their interpretation. Lumberjack, Jackhammers, rock and roll song. 
that's in 92. But maybe it had something to do with the classic WWF album, Piledriver. Who knows? Anything else on that match? You know, it's kind of interesting, though, to think that Van Hammer had a really long career in WCW. And it was, but it wasn't consistent. It was on, off, on, off, and just different variations of characters that he ended up playing still under the Van Hammer name or the Hammer name and so on. So, do you know there's a cartoon character like this? And it's from a Turner owned company, a Turner owned cartoon. No. So, um, Dexter's Laboratory cartoon has a cartoon within it called The Justice Friends. So it's a Captain America knockoff, a Thor knockoff, and a Hulk knockoff. But the Thor knockoff is called Valhalla, kind of like Van Halen or Van Hammer, but also Valhalla for Thor. And he is a rock and roll, blonde, tall, jacked hero. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, so why don't we uh, move on? Uh, we get uh, Flying Brian Pillman, a uh, little interview there, and then we get an interview with, of course, Miss York and Richard Morton. Not Ricky Morton, Richard Morton. And that leads us to the finals of our light heavyweight title uh, tournament, which is Flying Brian Pillman taking on Richard Morton with Alexandra York. I don't understand the the change in the gimmick for Richard Morton. Like I, okay, you're a part of the York foundation, but why are you still coming to the ring and wearing gear? Like your rock and roll express Mm -hmm. gear. I don't understand that. Um, you know, Terry Taylor wasn't coming to the ring in his old robe and flashy. Like what we know today is like Bobby Roode, like based robe who got the idea from Terry Taylor. No, he's wearing suit jackets, tuxedos, and so on as a part of the gimmick. I don't understand why Richard Martin is is still under the Rock and Roll Express garb if he's now heel and a part of the York Foundation. I mean, speaking of his Rock and Roll Express garb, why do his tights have pockets? His back pockets. Um, I, I don't think Ricky Morton works as a heel. I... I like something fell off in this match and my I really feel it's like he's Pillman would have been better as a heel and Morton as a face for this match. All right. So we see the start of the match. Uh Richard Morton with an arm drag takeover and then a thumb to the eyes and then some stalling tactics on the outside of the ring uh when Pillman eventually recovers from those maneuvers. Pillman uh, blocks a hip toss attempt and counters with a body slam and then hits a spinning heel kick to knock Richard Morton out to the floor. Pillman hits a double axe handle off of the second rope onto Richard Morton, gets a two count from the referee. We see lots of headlock takeovers and shoulder blocks by Pillman to continue to work on Richard Morton. We see Pillman with a series of arm drags, Japanese arm drags and headlock takedowns. Uh, to continue to get Morton down onto the canvas and to begin working Morton down. At one point, we see Richard Morton hitting an inverted atomic drop, and he begins to work on Pillman's left shoulder on the canvas, and commentaries talking about how Pillman is nursing an injured shoulder coming into this match. Pillman attempts a cradle-up roll-up for a two-count. Morton hits a, uh, hits or gets Pillman's back on the canvas and continues to work down his shoulder. Morton catches Pillman with a knee to the gut as Pillman is running the ropes and trying to do a comeback. 
and again working him back down on the canvas to continue grinding down and working on that left shoulder. Pillman is capable of scoring a clothesline onto Richard Morton, but Morton eventually recovers and does another thumb to the eyes uh, before any like combination of offense is capable from Brian Pillman. Pillman catches more, uh, Richard Morton with an enziguri uh, kick to the back of the head, gets a back body drop to start to get some momentum going, only to essentially be foiled by Richard Morton, who does a kick to the gut. We see a running shoulder block by Brian Pillman that causes both men to stumble through the ropes onto the floor. Um, on the floor, Morton uh, Irish whips Pillman into the ring post, and Pillman's shoulder cracks into the ring post itself. Richard Morton gets back into the ring and begins kind of like jaw jacking with the crowd. But behind his back, Brian Pillman is able to recover from that ring post slingshot, and he climbs to the top rope. Uh, as Richard Morton's back is turned, when Morton turns around, Brian Pillman hits a flying cross body, and we cut to the referee eye cam here, and Nick Patrick drops down and counts a one, two, three pinfall from that high cross body, and Brian Pillman wins the inaugural WCW Light Heavyweight Championship. He could add that to his titles because, as the announcers told us, he also previously won the Determination Award. Good job, Brian Pillman. Um, to compare this to in the In Your House series with the first WWF late heavyweight champion, this worked a lot better. And one of the reasons is that late heavyweight was Brian Christopher versus Takamich Noku in the finals, two brand new characters. Whereas these are two well-established characters fighting over a new title. So you're not trying to make three new things all at once. You got two already made things in the two wrestlers. And then they're going to make this new title. So I think it worked a lot better. Um, how is the max weight 236 for the light heavyweight title? I rewound that and listened to it again. I was like, there's not a chance I heard that right. No, I did. Did you um, Did you hear the announcers talk about uh, the press that was there? Because we have a multi-generational appearance in that Yamaguchi's dad is there. Yamaguchi-san's dad. All the way from Japan. That's crazy. I remember hearing them talking about, I think it was Jimmy Suzuki was also there and some additional yep. photographers at ringside, you know, trying to get clips because, you know, the launch of this division is going to certainly mean more talent exchange between Japan and WCW. And very soon thereafter, we eventually see uh, uh, on North American TV, Jushin Thunder Liger. Which I think is a groundbreaking moment in wrestling for him to appear in the states uh you know so educator has a, a wealth of mp3s and wrestling music and we'll discuss stuff a lot and wcw in the 90s uh at, like during the monday night wars was well known for taking popular songs and doing a little twist on them so enough to avoid copyright but a nirvana song a pearl jam song whatever for the entrances the alexander york music sounds like the dallas theme yeah oh, that's the entire intent it was supposed to be a riff of the dallas theme was it okay yeah absolutely I, no that's that's what it's meant to be I went on YouTube. Uh, Dallas is like, I have recollections as a kid of like, you know, whatever adult in the room watching Dallas. So I'm aware of it, but I don't think I've ever watched an episode or anything. So I went to YouTube. I'm like, let me find the music. Am I remembering this right? All right. So it was there. 
Yep, absolutely. I felt like Richard Morin as the heel is making mistakes that Ricky Morton never would. Right. And they even talked about that, how Ricky Richard Morton as Ricky Morton would never turn his back and, and so on. Yeah. It's an interesting play on the character and the change and, and the direction that the character would be going and combining the, you know, the heel turn with now the heel mistakes that are the typical or common in the direction of that character. And and then the refer refer eye camera, I actually really want more referee point of view camera angles because I was seeing stuff, different angles, positioning, where the feet are placed, how they got set up, like a lot that I've never really noticed before in a match. Because I'm not a wrestler myself, nor am I a referee. I'm not in there, but I'm seeing things. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Okay, they're doing that. They're setting that up. It's fascinating. I would really like to see any any company do a referee point of view like that. Just to to learn more of the craft. All right. Uh, we follow that up with we get our Halloween Havoc set back now. They're reusing it for some reason. I, I don't get why it was, I don't know. I don't know if it was there. It's not like they took it down. Uh, but why don't we go to match number nine on the night, which is the Z-Man taking on the WCW Halloween Havoc Phantom, um, which, uh, you know, I wonder who the Phantom will turn to be. Uh, do you want to break down this uh, squash match for us, Educator? It is an absolute glorified squash you know, we see Z-Man get one or two offensive maneuvers that essentially is no sold by the Halloween Phantom. Uh, we see the Phantom coming down to the ring. He's being all like, you know, secretive and trying to d- disguise his face and disguise his body with his cape so that no one can really tell exactly who he is. As when he finally gets into the ring, he completely drops his cape and attacks the Z-Man from behind. We see a vicious clothesline. And stiff body, uh, stiff body slam onto the Z-Man. The Phantom Irish whip Z-Man to the ropes for a knee to the gut. And then he picks up Z-Man and drops him over his knee for a gut buster. The Z-Man is able to uh, get a little bit of offense in as when the Z-Man was whipped into the ropes, the Phantom telegraphed a back body drop. The Z-Man was able to kind of kick the Phantom in the trapezius area, and then essentially um, uh, hits a drop kick onto the Phantom, and the Phantom is able to almost instantaneously rebound off of that drop kick, and he just grabs Zinc by the head, twists him around, and hits the uh, neck breaker for the one, two, three pin. And in this, the replay, we hear Tony Schiavone you know, say, you know something, you know, there's a bunch of signature maneuvers that we've seen throughout the years, but you know, that this one in particular, you know, I, I it referred to as the, uh, or is known as the rude awakening. So the commentators are planting the seeds as to who the identity is, but you know, after the reveal later in the show, you could obviously tell who, who it was almost instantaneously, because we had seen Ravishing Rick Rude um, 
as you know with the shorter hair and that physique from a year ago in feuding with the ultimate warrior and his run i mean he had just it was right about this time the previous year that he had left wwf over a contract dispute and was last minute last minute substituted out of the survivor series match and i believe haku or the barbarian ended up being his substitution for the heenan family spoiled it going to have the audience guess the identity of the phantom could it be the phantom of the opera bringing the music of the night to wcw maybe a time traveling actor from the late 80s because ben affleck was the bomb in phantoms yo can't be phantom of the opera that was tony shivani <laughs> well done maybe the ghost who walks off of the comic strip and onto the wcw runway maybe maybe classic hanna barbera character the funky phantom also owned by Turner. Oh, make it stop, educator. <laughs> do you have anything to add of substance, Kevin? <laughs> I do, and 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 I'm upset. I couldn't find any twin phantoms. Um, there's a very interesting thing in this match. Now, you'll have wrestlers frequently say that you want a reaction, whether they cheer you or boo you. You want a reaction. If you get no reaction, you're dead. Which is all, usually a very good point. But in this, the fans are so quiet, not because they're bored, not because they're disinterested, because they are focusing on this masked man and going, who is he? Right. They're like, they are just staring in intent and giving all their focus to trying to figure out the identity of this wrestling. That was very interesting to see. As soon as he hit the finish, it, it, it like it, oh, it yeah. instantly clicked with everybody who it was. You know, there wasn't anything. I mean, the stiff forearms at the beginning of the match. Yeah, absolutely. And then you you pick up on the mannerisms of, of Ravishing Rick Rude. But the, the the finish itself, I mean, he wasn't doing the gyrations of the body or anything like that. But when he did the snap or grabbed the neck and did the twist around and then did the sit out neck breaker. Yeah, it was it was it was obvious who it was. And, and there's definitely a pop for that. There's definitely a moment of realization when he hits whatever they were calling the rude awakening at the time. Yeah, so we follow that up with a Starcade 91 commercial, the same one that we saw earlier in the night. And then we go to match number 10, which is for the WCW Tag Team Championship. It is the Patriots, which is Todd Champion and Firebreaker Chip. Taking on the Enforcers, which is Arn Anderson and Larry Zabisco. Uh, what'd you guys think of this one? It was an interesting uh, match in that I did not remember. It was United States Tag Team Champions versus the World Tag Team Champions with the World Tag Team Championship on the line. Uh, in listening to Arn Anderson's podcasts uh, over the last few months, I know there's been a Q&A. Uh, in regards to some of the guys that he's worked with. And one of the things that he absolutely, one of the people he absolutely poops on is Todd Champion. You know, he's got an amazing look, but he just, he can't work. He doesn't understand the concept. And I, he's just, he's gone over many examples and, and just watching in this match. Yeah, it is pretty obvious how how much of a a rookie or how green Todd Champion is. Firebreaker Chip, like I uh, remember this the gimmick, the the whole the Air Forces slash, you know, the fireman gimmick being, you know, just weird combined together. 
But when you got all of the goofy gimmick off of the firebreaker chip, the person, the actual wrestler, the guy was like pretty well built, shorter, a little stockier. But man, I mean, like he has like a Kurt Angle like physique. And, you know, I'm if given the opportunity, I'm sure he could have done a lot more. But being stuck with the gimmick in the tag team, we weren't able to see as much as I, I'm willing to bet that, the you know, the the guy could have offered. A classic example of a guy that, if he was a little bit taller, would have had a, a better career. Absolutely. Yeah, so why don't you uh, go ahead and uh, break this one down for us? All right, so we see towards the start of the match, Zabisco and Chip are trading essentially abdominal stretches back and forth, and eventually Zabisco is able to hip-toss Firebreaker Chip over uh, to escape. Double uh, A tags into the ring and does a waist lock takedown to Firebreaker Chip, who eventually rolls out and counters as an escape. Todd Champion eventually tags in, and Anderson and Todd Champion are going back and forth. Anderson knocks him down with a bunch of fists and boots to the body. Double A on the outside of the ring tries to give a pile driver to Todd Champion, but Todd Champion's able to block that pile driver and essentially back body drop. Uh, double A onto the floor, onto the onto the mats on the floor. Back in the ring, uh, there's continued work back and forth, and eventually Larry Zabisco comes in to try to make a save, and Todd Champion's able to hit a double clothesline onto both of the enforcers. Zabisco eventually tags back in and slaps Todd Champion in the face, and as Champion is trying to chase after him, Zabisco's able to hit a blind tag, and they both, uh, Zabisco and Anderson, do a double-team maneuver to knock Champion down and then eventually toss him over the top rope onto the floor behind the referee's back. Double A drives the knee into the chest of Todd Champion and then eventually tags in Larry Zabisco. Larry Zabisco hits a body slam and a swinging neck breaker onto Todd Champion and gets a two-count from the referee. Arn Anderson tags back in. And champion, Todd Champion, begins to tries to brawl back and forth with Anderson for a comeback as Anderson is getting, you know, beaten down by Todd Champion. He hits a, or gets a blind tag on Anderson to get Larry Zabisco back in. Zabisco comes off the top rope with a double axe handle to the back of Todd Champion to knock him down as he was unsuspecting. Zabisco in the ring tries to do a suplex. Uh, but Champion is able to reverse it and eventually is able to sneak over to his corner to get the hot tag to Firebreaker Chip. So with that hot tag, now we get the schmas in the ring where all four guys are battling back and forth. Firebreaker Chip hit, hits drop kicks to both Aaron Anderson and Larry Zabisco. Uh, he throws Anderson into the ropes, Todd Champion, or I'm sorry, Firebreaker Chip into the ropes. Fires in Anderson and picks up Anderson and kind of does this weird botched looking like power slam to Anderson. Uh, gets a two count from the referee. As again, all four guys are brawling back and forth in the ring. Aaron Anderson kind of like Beals or, you know, Irish whips uh, Firebreaker Chip into the ropes. But Chip ends up bumping into Larry Zabisco. And that actually knocks Larry Zabisco through the ropes onto the entrance ramp. Todd Champion is following Zabisco out since he was knocked into the ring. But in the process of knocking Zabisco into the ring, he essentially turns right back around and Anderson picks him up and hits that twisting spine buster uh, to a huge pop from the crowd. 
and Anderson is able to get the one, two, three pinfall victory, pinning Firebreaker Chip. As excited as I get for the hot tag segment of the show, I have equally excited notes for that blind tag by the enforcers. That was so well done. I honestly feel like this is an underrated team. Ar- Arn and Zabisco. I was ridiculously impressed. I just wish they were against a better um, Todd champion. And uh, for my friend Joe, thank you for the lesson earlier. Not the father of independent wrestler Dan Champion. But Todd Champion there is called a kid. He's two years younger than Arn. Which is kind of absurd too. He's the bigger guy, but he takes a beating. But like Educator has said, apparently Arn has made a lot of references to he's just not that good. Um, I think my favorite part from the Patriots was Arn complaining that they had too much oil on them. I could not stop laughing for it. I just thought that was fantastic. <laughs> it's 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 dumb, but it makes sense, but it's funny, but like such a good spot for it. Um, but what got me is Arn and Larry are the old guys in this match, which us seeing them now, they're not the old guys. And it's just, it's just like for us having watched wrestling as long as we have, it's crazy because there's some kid that's just like we were 10 years old, you know, let's just say 10, give or take watching Arn and Larry as the old guys. There's some 10 year old kid watching now seeing like Randy Orton's the old guy. You know, and it's just interesting to it's interesting how people that used to be old aren't old as we get older. I, I, I want to see more enforcers, but against better team. Yeah. So then we go right back to Eric Bischoff, who is interviewing Polly dangerously with Medusa. And they revealed, guys, I don't know if you know this, that the Halloween Havoc Phantom is Richard Rude. Rick Rude. Shut the fuck yeah, crazy. Ravishing Rick Rude is the Halloween Phantom. Um, and then we get a training montage video. We get, uh, you know, a Ron Simmons training video where they're interviewing Bobby Bowden um, for Kevin, because I know you were a big sports fan. Bobby Bowden was the coach of the Florida State Seminoles. Uh, of course, that was. Okay, and, and what sport is that? Football. Um, that is the uh, football. Okay. Where Ron Simmons had his jersey retired and, and all that good stuff. Oh, okay. and then we go to match 11. Um, which is our main event, which is a two out of three falls match for the WCW World Heavyweight title. It is Ron Simmons with Dusty Rhodes in his corner, taking on Lex Luger with Harley Race and Mr. Hughes. And this was my match of the night. I enjoyed this through this two out of three falls main event. I was shocked at how much I liked it. I don't know what it was about it. I think the pageantry around it, the video in the front of it, um, really did give it a, a big match feel to me. Um, and I was I was actually shocked at how much I enjoyed this. I was a fan of this match, too. Um, the thing that stuck out for me, I, like, I was shocked at how the first fall went down. And I'm sure when I break it down and just how it went, I was just shocked, just the finish to it, uh, the sudden finish to it, the unexpected finish to it. The second fall is what really like took the wind out of my sails. To me, it was a botch in what they were trying to accomplish. I understand what exactly they were trying to do and Harley Race's interference 
in that to make what appeared to be a back body drop, not really a back body drop, but the ref thought it was. Uh, it just it didn't present well, but I understand what was trying to be accomplished to make it look like how it was. And to have a DQ finish, again, this is this weird time where over-the-top rope was considered a disqualifiable offense. But uh, And then the third fall just suddenly happens and and boom we it's the finish of the match and the show immediately closes so yeah it was a fun fun match uh for uh ron simmons actually breaks his hand a couple of fingers in his hand i believe or in his wrist i can't remember i know he got injured and had a cast on for a while as a result of this match and you see him at the beginning of i think the third fall he's constantly like shaking his wrist because some kind of injury has happened um, in the match itself. But it was fun for what it was, and uh, it is a successful de- a title defense for uh, Lex Luger. I think they missed a huge chance to do a title change here. I think the crowd would have erupted. I think it would have been accepted. I think it would have been a great moment, especially after that first fall. I think they should have done it here. Okay, let me ask you this, Kevin, because you said do a title change here. Their big event, Starcade, in a month or in two, you know, a month and a half here. So, what would you do a title change that close to Starcade? Would you do a title, a, a big title change at Elimination Chamber over WrestleMania? I think Ron Simmons deserved to win that title on a big stage. And I think that they had a good opportunity to do it at this match. Now, that hand injury may have changed things up. But if he, you know, because if it's showing in this match, if they had a rematch or if, or if he was against any, you know, whoever was holding the title at a Starcade, absolutely, I'd be all for it at Starcade. But he beat Vader for the title in a TV match doesn't take away anything from of course but i i would you know a moment that big would have been even bigger with a proper stage yeah a bigger audience at a proper stage rather than tv i get it and especially you know with what they ended up doing with starcade 91 that year uh there wasn't even a world title match luger didn't even defend the title he was one of the participants in that battle bowl lethal lottery and uh yeah all right so why don't we go ahead and break down our main event all right so we'll start with the first fall and then if any of you want to have comments after i break that down we'll uh we'll split it up so towards the start of the match we see uh trying to give it a big match feel with the referee bringing both guys in the middle of the ring going over instructions i like the fact how he said okay your seconds or your managers can stay at ringside but then he told mr hughes you have to leave you can't stay here so we get the big match feel and the big match hype. We see it towards the beginning of the match. Luger tries to start with a headlock takeover to Ron Simmons. Ron Simmons is able to power up and escape uh, continued work by Luger. Simmons with uh, three straight right hands and then an Irish whip. And he tries to do a drop kick, but essentially whiffs on that drop kick as Luger holds onto the ropes. 
uh, a little bit back and forth between Luger and Simmons. We see Simmons eventually come back with a face buster to the canvas onto Luger, knocking Luger down. He hits a stiff clothesline after uh, being able to come back. Simmons beals Luger into the ropes uh, and gets his signature power slam. Crowd goes nuts for that power slam. Luger then fires Luger uh, or Simmons fires Luger back into the ropes again and catches him and hits him with that stiff spine buster. And Ron Simmons goes for the pin and gets the pinfall clean in the ring. One, two, three pinfall over Lex Luger in about four minutes to start in to win the first fall of the match. That's when the crowd starts going nuts. It clean finish so early so decisive there's no questioning it questioning the legitimacy of the pinfall great booking like then i I start sitting up i'm like oh we we something's happening here interesting in that the face is winning the first fall because normally you know in the typical heels defending and the face is chasing You've got the heel winning the first, the face winning the second after battling back, and then you know the drama to unfold for the third. So when you've got the the heel champion that just is overwhelmingly beat, I just wow, what a, what a great start to the match, an unexpected start to the match. All right, in the second fall, we see Lex Luger starting the match. We have like a one minute break in between, which I kind of thought was a little weird. Uh, and both of the managers or assistants, they get into the ring. They're trying to pep talk, you know, their uh, their prospective guys up, getting them ready for the next fall. We see Luger in the corner, like he doesn't even stand up. He's really selling the sore back between the power slam and the spine buster that caused him to do the loss. So once we get back going in their match here, we see Ron Simmons hitting a standing vertical front suplex. Ron Simmons, Irish whips Luger into both corners to continue to work on his back and then does a back body drop onto Luger. Simmons hits a running bulldog out of the corner and onto Luger and goes for a pin count and gets a two count on Lex Luger. Luger attempts to do an inside cradle small package onto Simmons to sneak a quick win, but only gets a two count. Ron Simmons hits a sunset flip from the apron over the top rope onto Luger and is able to get a two count from the referee. Ron Simmons misses like a clothesline like dive and the momentum causes him to carry out out onto the floor. We see eventually Luger getting Simmons back into the ring and Luger is using his uh, his boot laces to rake uh, Ron Simmons eyes over the edge of his boots. Luger drops an elbow onto Simmons for a two count. And then after a flurry of different offensive maneuvers, we see a lot of weak pinfall attempts and commentary is selling how Luger can't capitalize on any of his moves because of the weakened back. And he's not able to hook the uh, leg for a count. At one point, Lex Luger hits a scoop power slam onto Simmons after an Irish whip only gets a two count. Luger hits a clothesline on Simmons, who was charging back after an Irish whip. Luger hits a standing sort of vertical suplex for another two count. And again, uh, all these pinfall attempts were very, very weak pinfall attempts because Luger is selling a back soreness, back injury from the first fall. 
We start to see Luger kind of do some cheating heel-like stuff as a reverse chin lock is applied to Ron Simmons, and he's kind of positioning his legs onto the bottom ropes for increased leverage. I love Harley Race's involvement while he's doing that because as the ref is about to look up, Harley Race just starts slapping the ropes so as to be the decoy as to why the ropes are moving around. Uh, eventually Simmons battles back from the chin lock maneuver and he wraps up uh, Luger for a backslide and ends up getting a very long two count from the referee. We see that there is a trip attempt from Harley race to grab onto Ron Simmons's foot. And from the opposite side of the ring, dusty Rhodes comes around and attacks Harley race who tried to trip Simmons again for a second time. And the beatdown from Dusty onto Harley Race got a huge crowd pop. During the melee of Dusty attacking Harley Race um, on the floor after Harley had tried to uh, trip Ron Simmons, they tried to do this angle where Simmons has his back towards the center of the ropes and Luger charges after him to kind of dive very similar to like the cactus Jack dive over the ropes onto the floor where he kind of sacrifices his own body to cause his opponent to spill out over the top rope. So what ends up happening is Luger does this dive, but Harley race grabs onto Ron Simmons, like leg in his tights so that Simmons won't follow through with the momentum and tumble over the top rope onto the floor. And somehow in seeing this, the referee, Nick Patrick, decides that when Luger dives onto Simmons and then gets flung over the top rope because of the dive, somehow that is an over-the-top rope toss on Simmons' part to and calls for a disqualification. But in seeing that dive, doesn't see you know, Harley race uh, holding on to Simmons so that Simmons wouldn't also tumble over the top for the momentum. So it was just a weird DQ finish. I understand what they were trying to accomplish and kind of making it look like Luger threw himself over the top rope, causing a disqualification on to be called on Simmons. But how do you see the dive, but not see, you know, races involvement to stop that from happening. So, we get a second fall that's counted. It's the first win, fall, uh, win for Lex Luger. So now both of the guys are now tied at one fall apiece. It, it is it is screwy. Um, it's not pulled off totally right. Like, I get it. It's implying, you know, Luger. It's implying that Ron caught Lex Luger and then tossed him over. In the referee's mind, clearly not what happened. It's a dumb rule, but for storyline reasons it works here what gets me is at this point the fans gotta be thinking oh my gosh ron has this it's kind of like modern day when we watch a brock lester match assuming he's gonna win and all of a sudden his opponent's like oh my gosh he might finally lose the title tonight this might actually happen someone's holding their own Ron looks like he's holding his own against luger and the only way luger gets a fall is by cheating so fans are that this upcoming third fall is incredible. The fans are all into it. And I think cause they really thought, Oh, Ron's going to beat him. We didn't think it was going to happen tonight, but he beat him clean in the first fall. Lex had to cheat to get that second fall. Wow. We're seeing something tonight. And the 
just the building excitement so great for the end of this pay-per-view. Yeah, that second fall, though, like like the educator was saying, was just a little too cute how they how they got to it, rather than just having you know um, Harley Race do something nefarious or, or trip him up, distract him, which probably would have been a little more effective. Where this was just a little too fluky. Um, this you know that fall was obviously the the worst fall of the three. And I kind of get it in that they want to make Ron Simmons look like a, a legitimate competitor and they didn't want to maybe beat him twice, beat him you know, clean in the match itself. It's just how they got to that fall and a, a DQ finish. It just there's other ways that could have happened. A DQ finish could have happened where it just didn't look so hokey with the referee staring at what's going on and just deciding to call it as an over the top rope. All right, so we have another like minute break from the DQ finish. And again, Dusty's in the ring coaching up Ron Simmons. We see Harley Race in the ring trying to coach up Lex Luger. And after that one-minute period is up, we are now officially into the third fall. So Luger is continuing to sell the sore back, and he suckers Simmons into the corner, and the referee tries to stand in between the guys to kind of separate them so that Simmons wouldn't attack Luger, who's kind of like out near the ropes about ready to, you know, put his head underneath. But Lex Luger ends up doing a cheap shot over the shoulders, uh, over the ref's shoulders, who's leaning forward, uh, trying to split them up. Simmons eventually battles back and gets Luger in the corner and climbs to the second rope for the infamous 10-punch, you know, spot. Uh, midway through, Luger dis, uh, grabs onto uh, Simmons's legs and attempts to do an inverted atomic drop, but is not capable of landing it on Simmons. And Simmons fires back and rebounds with a clothesline and uh, goes for a pinfall attempt and only gets a two count. Simmons does another back body drop onto Luger from the ropes, rebounding off the ropes for another two count attempt. Simmons himself hits an inverted atomic drop onto Luger and sets Luger up for a superplex off the uh, ropes. Simmons climbs to the second rope and is capable of completing a superplex off that second rope, goes for a pinfall attempt and gets a two count. Ron Simmons fires Luger into the ropes and hits the power slam and then hits a shoulder block off of the second rope, which causes uh, Luger to stumble from the canvas onto the floor. Uh, Ron Simmons follows Luger out onto the floor and they start to brawl back and forth. At one point, we've got Luger standing up and his back is towards the corner ring post. Simmons sets up for the three-point stance and lunges and charges towards Luger. Luger gets out of the way, so Simmons essentially rams himself shoulder first into the ring post, back into the ring. Uh, Luger gets Simmons back into the ring and immediately sets up for the pile driver. I had completely forgotten that Luger's pile driver was referred to as the attitude adjustment, but the attitude adjustment pile driver and the way that Luger sat out for the pile driver, he kind of sat sideways. So he ended up dropping Ron Simmons it made it look like it was on purpose, dropping him on the shoulder that had rammed himself just previously into the ring post. And Luger was able to get a decisive clean pinfall in the middle of the ring. One, two, three. 
to win the second of the three falls and retain his WCW championship. Uh, this third fall is fantastic. Um, the drama, the buildup, the both men got to win. Um, Luger going for cheap shots. He's got a little bit of blood over his eye. Uh, Ron Simmons hulking up. Um, there's a superplex and a two count, and the, you can hear the crowd just getting more and more into it, more and more invested in building, building. And honestly, that Ron Simmons with that three-point stance and Luger moves and Ron runs into the post, that's the big mistake that he has to make in order to screw up the match for himself and lose. And he's doing such a good match until, oh, he, he made that one mistake. It's, a, uh, you know, is it because he's less experienced than Luger? Is it, you know, whatever. But he doesn't look weak by any means either in this third fall. The, you know, we talk constantly about taking things as a whole. The only thing holding this match back is that ending for the second fall. Yeah, I disagree. <laughs> I just, I, I like I said, I, <laughs> I enjoyed this match. I was surprised by it. I think how they whipped the fans into a frenzy. Um, you know, like the educator said, they didn't probably want to beat Simmons clean twice in the ring um, as they're, they're building him up. Um, so that makes perfect sense. Um, I did like, though, that that second fall is not how the match ended. Because I feel like if you switch that second fall to Agree. to the third fall, that would have just deflated everything. At least with, you know, that second fall being the second fall, it was in the correct order. So, all right. Why don't we, uh, I, I think that's going to do it for Halloween Havoc 1991. Um Overall, I thought it was a very entertaining show. Obviously, there's like four matches that are just enhancement matches <laughs> um, that really don't even have to be on the card. Um, but Kevin, earlier you said you would have put the Chamber of Horrors match different on the card. Wh where would you have put it? I would have put it not second from last, but third from last. And maybe... Like Oz versus Bill Kazmaier, maybe in between, just like a nothing match to break it up. So, what would you have had open then? You know, imagine show. Imagine show open with that Bobby and Terry Taylor match. That would have been an amazing opener. Yeah, I, I also think too where they put the Halloween Phantom. They should have had the Tom Zink Halloween Phantom match earlier in the card, and then you could have done the reveal later. Right. I would have, like you just said, yeah. I would have done that Halloween Phantom match right before the Chamber of Horrors do the chamber of horrors match, Ooh. then do whatever like buffer match for the main event. And then just before the main event, you do the Paul danger, poly dangerously reveal. And then boom, you got your main event finish. That's not a bad one. Yeah. And then also too, you've could have with like the Ron Simmons training videos could have thrown them in. So we didn't have to watch the chamber of horrors, you know, the, the stage get put back together. We could have watched that video right. instead. A little better timing there, but hindsight yeah. is twenty twenty. So, um, so why don't we go ahead and uh, do we have? Why don't we try to round out our top five matches for Halloween Havoc? Because I feel like we could probably get two matches at least in the top five. Currently, we only have the three top matches. Uh, of course, number one is the Nasty Boys versus the Steiners. Uh, number two is uh, Brian Pillman taking on Lex Luger, and then number three is the Thunderdome match. So, all right. So, are we all in agreement? Bobby Eaton, Terry Taylor, probably we could probably put 
on this? I would think so. I would argue for it. Yeah. Where where do you think you would go, Educator? I, I thought it was a good match. It wasn't my favorite of the night, though. Um, but but I'm all for, you know, like I said, rounding out the top five here. I, I would probably right now, I would put it in the number four spot. So you'd keep it below Thunderdome? I keep it below Thunderdome. Right now, fresh, I'd put it above Thunderdome, but I'd stop okay. it there. Yeah, I think I would probably put it above the Thunderdome match as well. Or any of that. Um, okay. But we, we also wanted to look. Kevin, you love stunning Steve Austin and Dustin Rhodes. I, I did. Um, would that be a top five match for you? If it's a top five match for me, for sure. I get it about the ending. So I I would uh, offer up putting it at five. Educator, what do you think about that? I honestly, I'd put the Luger Simmons two out of three falls ahead of that. After ha- after having gone and redone the recap of that for the show, um, I, I'm liking the Simmons-Luger match more than uh, my notes that I had and your version of the Dustin Stunning Steve match. <laughs> Look how it comes down to the educator liking his notes more than your notes, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so how about this? If the Austin-Dustin match was on a different one, I think it would have made top five. And probably. And I think it would have been bounced Yeah. the next week. That's probably your number six, then. Yeah. I Yeah, because I do think there's an argument for Luger-Simmons being in top five. Yeah. Plus, I, I don't think, too, Kevin, you could argue that Austin Dustin's better when you have a time limit draw. Right. You know, and you were talking about the, the ending of the middle fall is, is what you're complaining about, where this is the ending of the match. Nothing. So I guess the question to you guys is then how does the uh, thunder, how, where does Thunderdome compare to um, Luger Simmons? I, I'd put Luger Simmons over Thunderdome. I would put it over Thunderdome too. All right. So and you would have Thunderdome over it. Educator. I'd have Thunderdome over it, but I certainly concede to to the majority. So Thunderdome at five. All right. So we got guys, we have our top five for Halloween Havoc. Of course, number one is still the Nasty Boys versus the Steiner Brothers. Who would have thought? Uh, number two is Brian Pillman versus Lex Luger. Number three is beautiful Bobby Eaton taking on Terrence Taylor. Uh, number four is Lex Luger taking on Ron Simmons, two out of three falls. And then number five is the Thunder dome match all right guys we got to rank this pay-per-view uh why don't we start at the top and work our way down is this the best one we've seen is it better than halloween havoc 1990 i don't think so see i was gonna put it there because the fact is we got three matches we debated on to add which we have never had well i guess the part where i filler there's a well, lot the, of filler. <laughs> well, the part that I struggle is that the filler was removed from 90 because Shane McMahon didn't follow through on the process <laughs> of, uh, you know, recapping the whole show for us. So it's it's kind of like comparing apples to oranges in reality here. Can we do apples to pumpkins for how apples to <laughs> pumpkins? Exactly. Um, yeah, it's kind of hard because 90 does have an asterisk by it. Um 
I understand what Kevin, what you're saying with the three matches. Plus, we had the Chamber of Horrors match. Like I said, this to me, pay per view was very enjoyable to watch. I loved every second of it. I loved the campiness of it, the over at the top of it. I would put it number one personally. Let's do it then. All right. So our number one Halloween Havoc so far. Just we're just going right in order, guys. 1991 is number one. Number two is 90, and then number three is 89. Uh, that might change next week because next week we are watching Halloween Havoc 1992. What will the wheel reveal? Of course, in the main event of that one, it is Jake Roberts taking on Sting in a. Uh, I, I don't want to give away what stipulation the match is because we have to spin the wheel. Spin the wheel. Make the deal. Um, one thing too, I do want to point out, there is a match on this card that I never knew these two fought each other. Never knew they wrestled because they feel like they're two people from different eras. I'm just going to throw that out there. All right. So, uh, educator, what do you want to say to the people out there? First and foremost, want to thank everybody that's tuning in to hear us go over our Halloween Havoc shows. We thank you for your support. Want to say thank you to my two co-hosts here. It's always fun to uh, reminisce about these shows and get each other's takes on what the good, the bad, and the ugly have been. As always, thank you to the Retro Network for your support and uh, for sponsoring our show. Thank you to Fun.com and HalloweenCostumes.com for your support as well. Um, And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Yeah, and I just want to say, as always, you could follow me on Twitter at... Maddie Treats. Once again, that is at Maddie Treats. Um, you know, once again, thank you to the Retro Network. Thank you to my co-hosts. And thank you to Fun.com and HalloweenCostumes.com. Make sure you click the link in the show notes to save you some jingle jangle. And Mr. Kevin Hellions, why don't you take us home? time for the thank you closings thank you to my host here thank you to the retro network for hosting us thank you to wwe network for the content thank you to halloweencostumes.com and fun.com thank you to richard reader and jason gross for our logos you can follow the show across the internet at trn house show you can follow myself at master library and masterlibrary.com is my own personal blog you can follow treats at maddie treats we know the educator avoids the internet at all times and guys i just want to say we don't always have to get along but even if you want to be rude you can still wear a mask this has been a presentation of the retro network